Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm a fan of classic movies. Hello and welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of double features dedicated to programming the finest, most eclectic, and downright bizarre film pairings and cataloging the discussions that ensue. We're your gruesome twosome, Kyle and Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. I'm Levi. And here we are back for episode 72. Now, the films themselves we're going to be talking about today, which include, of course, A Brighter Summer Day and Until the End of the World, both from 1991 both very long movies. Mm-hmm. Do not expect this podcast to be especially long. We're no. at a little bit of a shortage mm-hmm. of things to talk about, mostly because Levi and I, we've talked about before, we're both teachers. The end of the year is kind of a very... Until the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, and it it's was 1999 <laughs> when the Indian satellite went out of... Con- the Indian nuclear satellite went out of control. An overlapping dialogue. Couldn't care less. Yeah. yeah. It was like, well, actually we did, but... Yeah. Uh, anyway, that is, that is said over and over in the movie and in the trailer, so yeah. anyway, I just find it interesting. But uh, again, we, we're running yeah. through the gauntlet of the end of the year, and it's an exciting time. It's actually a time I really like, but it's just a lot of stuff, yeah. and so we haven't been able to watch as many new things. Plus, um, we've spent we so much like. time watching these movies. Yeah, I mean, literally yeah. last weekend, it was like almost an all-day event for each film, uh, you know, as long as they are. Yeah. But, we, but again... Yeah, Make no mistake, both great movies. Better movies to watch. So. And again, I think there's a certain poeticism to them both being in 91. Uh, we picked them both for a reason because they're both kind of international films in different ways mm-hmm. uh, and also came out, you know, at, uh, in 91. And, you know, they're both very different, but in a weird way, again, we said last week, one's kind of looking at the recent past and one's looking at the near future, you know, in, I think, pretty interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So we're going to dive into those. We might even have a special appearance from Mr. Vim Vendors making his return to the show. It'll be towards the end. We were able to snag a few minutes with him, uh, and we'll get into that conversation later. But before we do any of that, mm -mm mm-mm-mm, Levi, you know what time it is. Hanging out at the corner booth at Ruby Tuesdays. We gotta, we just gotta dig into that blue plate special. Hi, Audrey. Hello, Mom. Have a cup of coffee, please? Sure. I'll have what she's having. Your order is here. Bacon. 
Bacon. Bacon. We just got back from Ruby Tuesdays, mm-hmm. and I said that. Pretty, in its own way, slightly underrated establishment. Yeah. I mean, not the greatest food in the world, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they take they a little while, job. but, yeah. I mean, that's everywhere. Yeah. Anyway, so, I don't know. We were actually talking about this earlier that, uh, that it's like now a lot of places are, like, just opening whenever they want to, yeah. it seems like, and it's kind of just like, yeah, let's not do that. But okay. But you do you. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Whatever. I mean, open when you want to. So, we're going to talk about uh, a miniseries we actually just finished, and then um, one film that's a new release, and kind of it being a sequel to another movie that's on the new-ish-er side, but already 10 years old, which is kind of shocking. John Adams, from 2008, the miniseries that aired on HBO... This is one of those things I've been wanting to watch in a roundabout yeah. way since it came out. I remember I was in high school when it came out um, on HBO. We didn't have HBO at that time, so I didn't uh, wasn't in a place to be able to see it. Yeah, uh, a few years ago, I think it was back in I've been twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. I can't quite remember. I actually read David McCulloch's uh, well known landmark biography of John Adams, of which the miniseries is principally based. Of course, it follows and is about uh, our second president, the founding father, John Adams, and his professional and private lives. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this has a reputation for being this kind of big miniseries, and it was slightly at a time before peak TV in terms of HBO was certainly, this is right around the time, about a year removed from when The Sopranos would have ended. Yeah. So HBO was becoming and already had been In between the that and Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah, the powerhouse that it was. Yeah. Um, and this miniseries, I think, did contribute a lot to that. It won a lot of Emmys, I know. I know it got Globes. syndicated very quickly, too, because I remember it was on the History Channel and uh, maybe A&E also, because I think they usually syndicate, you know, they syndicated The Sopranos on there. So, yeah, I had seen it, actually. I remember the first time I ever saw any of it was uh, on uh, our great aunt and uncle Sarah and Arnold's house, that old white TV they used to have uh, at their, their newer house. Yeah. Uh, it was on. I remember watching some of it, and that's been like that's like almost fifteen years ago. So now, so but, this had uh, a pretty big reputation. Uh, Levi, for you, and we watched it over the course of kind of several weeks as a family. Yeah. Us and our parents watched it together. Uh, what did you think of the? Well, you've read John the Adams? book, and I haven't, so I can't speak to all of the kind of uh, you know adaptation in that regard. But I mean, it's pretty much. Uh, I think maybe the most important biopic I've ever seen um, in the sense of other than maybe like Malcolm X, but yeah, uh, especially this though, because of John Adams's kind of short shrift of history that he constantly gets. It's very easy. And it was easy then as easy then as it is now. And it was even happened in Hamilton recently of just to say, Oh, he was a loud mouth loser and arrogant yeah. loser because he wasn't didn't have that great of a presidency and again um, his presidency is always between that of george washington and thomas jefferson which are in their right. own distinct ways held in very and, high regard and at the same time we i guess a place to start is and those who don't know this most people do because if you didn't know this and you saw it in the miniseries you would think oh this is made up yeah but that literally, you know, that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on July 4th, 1826. 
within hours of each other, which was the yeah. 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, one of whom wrote it and the other of whom argued on its argued behalf. for it and got it passed, basically. Yeah. And the fact that that happened and that they both died on the same day, on the 50th, which first of all is just proves to me there is a God, which yeah. I already believe anyway. But that, yeah, that's not something that just happens. And ostensibly, they were but, really the last founding fathers right. of that generation. And because you know? that's kind of a moment at the end when they're looking at the painting that's the famous Turnbull painting of, yeah. of Declaration of Independence. He said, all of us dead except me and him. And like, yeah. you know, But that, uh, but that, the point, though, what I'm making about bringing that up is usually everyone tells that in the sense of Jefferson. Yeah. They want to talk about Jefferson in that fact about yeah. more of like, oh, they, but... Like I said, because it's like, well, because Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. But Adams, like like we had said, was not only a, you know, idealist uh, and kind of supporter of its ideas, and but was such a vocal proponent of it mm-hmm. that a lot of people would see that as being lesser than writing it, which, I mean, ultimately, I think is to have not written the words is, yeah. you know... But then again, in a lot of ways, I think Adams almost lived the words out sometimes better than Jefferson did in his own way. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole other thing. But also, so that's all just to say that, and I think the ending of the whole thing really touched me in a big way of the moment where it cuts back to him and his wife before he's going to go uh, back to Philadelphia or he was, no, he was going to go to Europe or something. Yeah. And they're standing there in the snow and kind of his last words that he says are, that I hope that you can exercise some freedom due to everything it took to secure it for me personally, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's just one of the greatest endings of anything I've ever seen, just to summarize that of saying as a summation of, look at everything this man did, and he's not really that regarded by all that. I mean, you know, and that show helped to begin to dispel those notions of him not being as important and i feel like historians already knew that yeah. but in the public eye i feel like that still hasn't caught for some reason but then again i don't think that the public is going to be all that interested to watch john adams anyway just average everyday people um but all that's just to say i think it's one of the best miniseries i've ever seen let alone like i said just but a yeah because it's general, not just but, it doesn't feel like it's just filling in the gaps and just right. like I mean, it's got very biopicy elements to it, but I mean, it doesn't feel like I said it's just paint by numbers. It really feels like the whole creative team behind it had a real intention, and also not only intention in making it, but the performances are so strong yeah. across the board. And I think it's really led most, especially of course, by Giamatti and yeah. Paul Giamatti as John Adams and Laura Linney as Abigail Adams. Yeah, and their their relationship and their love story and the lives of their yeah, family. Yeah, because it's as much about that as anything else, and. Another thing I really loved about it, and I'd already known this, but just his whole participation as the uh, defense attorney in the Boston Massacre trial. Yeah. And that, that, you know, and that's another thing I think that his, that whole episode of his, not the show, but that whole episode in his life, I think makes it hard for Americans to, it's very messy, and I think it's hard for Americans to regard that as respectfully as they should. But the whole point of that story is to say that even though that was a very, that was this big, you know, flashpoint for the revolution and kind of, uh, you know, talking point ammunition for wanting to go to war, 
the fact that the things that happened there were relatively complex um, and that he defended them proves everything about America before it was yeah. even founded is that, no, we have to defend this ideal no matter how, how much we don't like it. And, right. and the fact that he did that and stood up for that, I think... And again, and he lost is, favor with some yeah. of his, mm-hmm. you know, even somebody like Samuel Adams, who was his cousin, of mm-hmm. course. But that's so something that. I don't see most other founding fathers ever having done, is something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's also just by circumstance of him being there when it ha- you know, yeah. of him just being in that position. But I really do think there aren't very many I could think of that would do the right thing in that situation and actually try, you right. know. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of it, it goes back to, I really feel like Adams is usually one of the most awkward founding fathers. Just, he was was then and is now because somebody, of course, like Benjamin Franklin, he was kind of the oldest of the founding fathers. He was known as somebody who was kind of a rock on tour, who was somebody who was, you know, an elder statesman of that group. And so he has that kind of, OG quality to a lot of people. George Washington, of course, had his own remarkable life, and especially being a general during, uh, of course, the Revolution and his statesmanship and his literal physical appearance are things that are just so iconic for Americans. And again, he had a very successful first presidency. Mm-hmm. If anything else, just by being normal and setting this precedent for what the office can or should be, Jefferson, of course, had the whole... Uh, you know, writing the Declaration of Independence, um, being himself a bit of a scientist or an inventor, and again having a, his own successful presidency in terms of Louisiana Purchase, and still maintaining America to basically stay out of the mm-hmm. European wars, and then even with Jefferson, there is the whole like, even people who are critical of him, like the whole division between his words of being one of emancipation and freedom and a zealousness for liberty juxtaposed against his the obvious horrendous nature of him also being a slave owner and the things he did to his slaves. So even that about Jefferson gives him this like dimension of intrigue or dimension mm-hmm. of study. John Adams is almost the most interesting, I think, because he's almost the most normal out of all of yeah. those men. He was somebody who of great intellect. Uh, I think... You know, the only one that really had an intellect, frankly, I think, on par with him as much as I've studied him was maybe Jefferson. Um, was also his own, in his own way, a talented writer, and you can see that even just in the letters and the diaries he left behind. Uh, was again an able-bodied public speaker, someone who was willing to kind of debate and talk, and that's how he saw politics as politics should occur, as opposed to Jefferson was kind of somebody who was who would rather kind of conduct politics in the background and part of that was because Jefferson himself was actually kind of more of a shy mm-hmm. man and didn't love to publicly speak or anything um, but again Adams was somebody who while not like religious with the same zealotry that I think when a lot of people say religious that we would attribute to that now but someone who was a man of God who was someone who was aware of his own contradictions and I think the most self-conscious of the founding fathers is in terms of his writing and grappling with himself um, and also was somebody who again kind of his own presidency was kind of the first really dramatically or troubled presidency in the sense that he faced 
sometimes even bigger problems than those that Washington or Jefferson faced. But he did successfully keep us out of, of course, the European wars. And irregardless, he was just someone who, I I don't think is necessarily a walking contradiction, but someone who knew that he was just kind of a, an awkward man and was willing mm-hmm. to kind of embrace that about himself and not necessarily hide from that, but also a man of pride. So again, he's, a, I don't know if I really quote, have a favorite founding father, but ever since having read David McCulloch's biography of him, he's one that I think about a lot and keep yeah. returning to is one that, um, again, I think out of all the major founding fathers, he's the one that's the most human and the most awkward. Yeah. Uh, and in that way, one of the most accessible, uh, for again, which is strange because he, he he had a towering intellect and somebody who was a man of words and uh, a man of letters. But well, I think also I he's very uh, accessible in his verbosity of just uh, just the amount of uh, just all the talking he did. I think that's more of a human impulse than to be shy and write and you know, as someone who loves to talk myself, it makes sense to me his, you know, understanding of America and his willingness to uh, be unliked if it meant, you know, being true to what America was. And I I think think, more than anything, especially when compared to Jefferson, yeah, um, he was willing to stick his neck out on the line and say things that he knew he couldn't immediately get a political gain out of it. And again, I have... Uh, complicated respect for Jefferson, but that's something that he was not as willing to do. Um, but again, what do you think of Paul Giamatti's rendering of? Yeah, I mean Giamatti's great in everything anyway. But yeah, it was really good. I mean, it was uh, it was very Giamatti in, in a lot way, of ways. Yeah. But um, but I feel like that's what Adams would have been is that kind of shrill and you know. Uh, and when I think about crazy, Giamatti's performance, but... too, this goes to a bigger point, I think, about the show, which was, again, directed by uh, Tom Hooper, which I think this is by far the best thing I've seen that he's made, uh, that it was really willing to embrace the muckiness of the period in a way that sometimes the period is not depicted. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes we want to you know, grant this stateliness and this kind of regalness to that era when I think one of the things I really loved about this show among many was that it was willing to embrace the, you know, the bad hair, the nasty teeth, flies flying about, like the muck and the, and just how that was brought to life in the show and even how the way the show was shot. Like, there was a lot of scenes where it would kind of look like either was from canted angles or angles that were like more handheld it just broke a lot of barriers down, I think, of how a lot of these things are expected to be seen by the public. Yeah. And that I really appreciated about it. Yeah. As well. And I really also, what I loved about Laura Linney as Abigail was how much she was willing to be frank and kind of talk back to her husband, even though there was yeah. clearly this love that they had for one another. But again, so many of their conversations, I directly or indirectly remembering being versions of what was in their private letters that they had sent to each other, which I'm sure they were eager to try to replicate that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I do want to remark quickly. This is kind of off topic about, I'm not really that big of a fan of the movie 1776, although I'm fascinated by it, the musical. There's a lot of problems with that movie I have. Um, but I really think that, uh, 
what's his name at William Daniels who was Feeney on uh, Boy Meets World Boy Meets World and was in Graduate and he's been he was in Reds and all kinds of stuff he is a really good John Adams I think because that's always he the first a good one, impression yeah. I've always had of John Adams is that performance of just being so antagonistic and um I f- and this was I felt like this was a g- another good version of that also and yeah um but that like I said that whole thing is so complicated and not particularly great but that is good but yeah this thankfully uh and it wasn't about all the basic things you would think it was going to talk about either yeah um I mean it didn't like go all in depth on other presidencies that weren't as big like it didn't make a big deal about when Hamilton died. It just kind of yeah. went by things as it felt it needed to. It was just very much accurate to Adams, I think, and yeah. and but while also being, I think, a larger, uh, you know, portrait of America in general. But it was, it was, it was kind of had both had its cake and ate it too about that. I think of it was about Adams, but about a lot of other things, but it didn't feel the need to be about everything of the era either. It was so yeah. that's very particular. Wasn't really about the revolution itself. There weren't really any bad And a lot of that had to do so, with Adams himself yeah. was abroad in Europe while the revolution was right. mostly going on. Yeah. So yeah, it was that separation there. And again that, you know, he's someone who is a man of letters and someone who had all this intelligence, but then he went away to like what quote the high culture of its day was in France and how out of place he felt there and deep down how badly he wanted to go back home, obviously, mm-hmm. but he needed to be there. Um, and again, I think too, you know, was it what? Seven episodes, I think totally. Yeah. The whole something show like that. I think it's depiction of the passage of time was also something that I'll think a lot yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. I think it, it felt very, big and lifelike in terms of the length of the whole thing um and individual episodes sometimes were nearly an hour and a half some were uh, right about an hour um and again it's like we were saying i feel like just by being a really great depiction of the revolutionary era era, that it almost is just kind of instantly the best thing to depict that era because we've expressed our own frustration that there's not a lot of really great things depicting that era i feel like the patriots brought up a lot as just a movie about the it's revolutionary a, it's era but it's vaguely about the american revolution yeah uh, but yeah but i mean you know I, I really too like the its depiction of washington and i've really wanted to see a uh, more full-throated depiction of washington for some time now yeah. but that i really loved how um he was positioned in the whole thing uh was it that played Washington? Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Uh, David Morse was yeah. uh, played Washington. One thing I also really loved was in the show, like its depiction of the paintings of the era, yeah. and how it was very clearly the paintings, but then also the likenesses. That's actually what was funny about the, the Turnbull actors. painting is it was like. All the other delegates were the same as in the painting, but then they were different. Yeah. It was just kind of funny. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Yeah, I th- felt like everybody was good in this. I, uh, the Hamilton guy, I, he wasn't as great as he could have been. Rufus Sewell. He was that guy that was in uh, uh, Old. He yeah. was the guy that got yeah, old yeah, yeah. quicker than the old. Thoreau was in a little bit as John Hancock. Yeah, that was kind of random. And then, yeah, like uh, Danny Houston just kind of disappeared. 
uh, ways into it. I know he looks so much like John Houston. It's crazy yeah. and sounds like him. But Steve uh, Stephen Delane was I thought pretty good as yeah. uh, Jefferson mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but like I said, just by being pretty good, I thought it or took, I think it's great. Yeah. But like just by being even just good, it was instantly oh one yeah. of kind of defining founding fathers depictions I yeah. can think of. Mm-hmm. But. So that's John Adams. You can basically stream it anywhere where HBO is available to you. On Max now. Max is the one to watch. Never forget. Uh, we, we don't have a lot to say about these. We recently saw the new movie Evil Dead Rise, which is, of course, a sequel to the Evil Dead from 2013 and part of the larger Evil Dead series. So we kind of went back and quickly watched Evil the 2013 Evil Dead before seeing Evil Dead Rise. Um any kind of capsule thoughts on either one of these movies? I want to uh, start first of all by saying I've never been a particular Evil Dead fan. I've um, liked them fine enough myself. I think they're, but, yeah, I mean, I have never seen an Evil Dead movie that is bad. Uh, you so, still yet see Army of Darkness. No. Yeah, uh, but you and, know what it is and seen clips from it, yeah. Yeah, and that also goes in the fact that, I just, and I know everybody's going to kill me on this, but I just think that Sam Raimi is a pretty slightly overrated filmmaker anyway from what i've seen the only of his movies i feel is truly great is the first spider-man i'm not even that crazy about spider-man 2 which i think is still really good spider-man 3 is awful and no one and tried to be no one remembers how bad it is for some uh, reason. yeah there's tried to be all this uh, yeah. um, alternate history about it i think now in response to well it's better than this and this way and that way than these marvel movies it's like yeah but it's still bad I mean, yeah. you know, it just now, I've is. seen I've seen plenty of Marvel movies that are better than Spider Man Three. That doesn't mean I'm more interested in them. But I was great. And yeah. Powerful was awful. That was terrible. But and then there's other movies his I haven't seen. Dark Man and uh, uh, A Simple Plan. Some stuff I eventually want to see. Quick and the Dead. And Quick and the Dead. Years ago, I feel like. But and so I'm not like real anti Sam Raimi. I'm not trying to be like that. But I, but I will say I feel like his Evil Dead movies are the. Uh, perfect distillation of what he wants to be and what he's interested in. I've always, and, I will say, I've always heard good things about Drag Me to Hell. I've not seen that, yeah, but um, but made that like oh nine. What I am most impressed by about the Evil Dead movies, and I think what everybody else is, is the, are the technical aspects yeah. of it, which are owed to Barry Sonnenfeld and Part and um, and Ramey himself. Yeah. Uh, but I do what I do respect about those movies is just the uh, the blending of I wouldn't say comedy and horror because I don't think it's particularly funny, um, but the kind of crude macabre humor, yeah, uh, that is very unsettling and strange. I think especially of that and more of Evil Dead Two that's there in the first Evil Dead, yeah. And I'm more of a Evil Dead One fan but i would like to see evil dead 2 again i feel like i'd like that a little better than i, I do I think i do to, mostly but. agree with everything you said uh i do think evil dead 2 especially is pretty good but has since been kind of overblown and to the point of being overrated yeah. by this point but i think i mean you know obviously evil dead 1 came along and it was pretty low budget and a small success and then evil dead 2 is even more of a cult success and essentially evil dead 2 is basically a remake of Evil Dead And that's my biggest problem uh, with it. With more money. Right, and I'm just kind of like, okay, so you just made the thing again. Which gets us to the Evil Dead from 2013, which ostensibly is probably technically also a sequel 
I guess so, yeah. But it's essentially um, just a remake of yeah, this but yet again. The most interesting aspect, and in, in especially as a remake, as far as the imagery, because my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in any horror movie is in the original Evil Dead, when they're kind of fighting some of the deadites, and there's the one that's under the floor. Yeah, right. It's a woman that's like screaming yeah. and beating the like uh, floor up with yeah, the chain. Trying and to just, get up. Yeah. I just found that to be one of the most visceral. Uh, thrilling horror scenes I've ever seen. Really only on par with like the scene from The Thing where stuff's going crazy of when they're testing everybody's blood and all that stuff. But like they did that same imagery again even after they had done it again in Evil Dead 2. So it's like that's why I think it's so funny to even make a remake of Evil Dead is like it already got remade and you all think it's the best sequel ever. So yeah. You know, and this had a reputation, that. I think, because yeah. this is one of Fede Alvarez's And I'm a first Fede movies. Alvarez fan. And we're fan, big so, fans of Don't yeah, Breathe. Right. And, and he didn't direct Don't too, Breathe 2, but, yeah. but he like co And I even and, quite like enough the uh, girl in the spider's web, which yeah. is not did, great. Didn't he but uh, have a story credit or something on the newest one? The Evil Dead Rise, I think. Yeah. I and and so I don't really have much to say about that Evil Dead remake other than I found it interesting that. The main character was going through these like heroin withdrawals. That was that was that was kind of different and yeah. new to a way to kind of think. And it it isn't even so much of is she actually possessed or is she just going through withdrawals, just more of I think the metaphor of what it's like to deal with someone yeah. like that um, when they're going through that. Sure. Normally they don't like uh, kill people and you know well act yeah. like that you know become possessed. Yeah. But but I felt like that was a very interesting. Other than that, it was a pretty yeah, nothing I, movie. I thought it was but, well yeah. made enough. I, I think a solid three out of five. I mean, and on, maybe even on the lower end of three out of five, but half, like think, still but fine. Yeah. One thing I did think a lot about during it is how kind of ruined Cabin in the Woods has for ruining a lot of these movies because it just pokes all these holes and a lot of these and again the Which first doesn't two ruin did, the first evil yeah. Dead, but yeah well, they're I know good mean, but yeah. i mean in a, a post cabin in the woods movie and i know yeah. that movie's like not as popular for people nowadays because of a lot of stuff with joss whedon i still think that movie's pretty good i mean I, and i like it and i remember what a big deal it was when it came out and so so he wrote that yeah he co-wrote okay. i think with drew goddard and then drew well, that goddard has one of the I, don't, well, I don't want to start talking about cabin in the woods but that has one of my favorite moments in any movie ever you were telling me about it before it happened, but didn't say exactly <laughs> when Chris Hemsworth's flying through the air on that motorcycle, <laughs> and he's and he thinks he can like get over the, but then it turns out there's like a literal force field, yeah. and it literally kills him, and it blows up. That's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. I literally was like, "What?" Like, was also, so one of the great title like, cards of all time. Yeah, that's for a good that. one too. But again, but, I yeah. I think that movie's still pretty good. Yeah, and yeah, I, I like it. And, in the woods, and know, again, it's but, just like I can't yeah. like see a deconstruction of that new. And then yeah. we try to do this more straight faced again. Yeah. One, just, one more thing about Cabin in the Woods, I think is funny, just because I doubt we'll. Well, we may do it on here eventually, but I don't know. But that that part where the guy, you know, it's that typical like you don't need to go down yeah. there kind of guy. Yeah. But and then he's calling the guys in the lab yeah. like. Hey, they're coming. They're, they're come to the killing. They're floor. come to the killing floor, and they're like making fun of him yeah. on the other line, like, "Yeah, this creep, yeah. whatever." Like, just fun, like a funny to see that trope done that way. Well, also, like, you know, you couldn't get two better <sighs> actors for the guys basically running the whole thing than Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins were perfect for those yeah. roles. Um, so 
again, that's the 2013 Evil Dead. Evil Dead Rise, we've been seeing trailers for this for a while. Man, like, oh man, like this looks intense. This looks crazy. Mommy's with the maggots now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I like yeah. this one better yeah. than yeah, it's, the first it's one. Better. Uh, I will say, like, this was the first movie I saw in theaters since Bo is Afraid, as we talked about last episode. And it was just like a little bit of a cold water in the face moment of like, oh, yeah, these are what movies are again. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this was like, I mean, not that movies can't be great outside of that, but to go to those places and then just go back to a fairly conventional yeah. horror film yeah, uh, it was a little bit of a cold well, water in the face yeah. moment for me. What I know. like more about this one in particular, I think it, uh, and it has very extremely basic plot, you know, details that are literally the same as these I other I did really like that it was almost exclusively uh, women Yes, kind of that was different too. That, you know, that yeah, was... and so wh- one thing I was going to say about that, though, as far as these movies, one thing I like about the Evil Dead movies, and something that I actually think that this remake didn't do, is the extreme, not to say that movie wasn't pretty violent, but the imagery yeah. and the chaos that is wrought in these movies. Because it's a very particular uh, sensibility, as we, as we mentioned earlier about the... Or the original movies is this extreme violence and this but with this weird kind of like goofiness right is very particular I feel like this is the closest I've yeah. seen to that since those original even more Evil than the, that, the 2013 one yeah because that's I what I'm saying like, I, I don't mean, feel like that there were some comedic moments here and there yeah. but not compared to this not one not really yeah and so that was trying to take itself almost too seriously and I think this movie is serious I don't think it's like too funny or anything but just particularly some of the imagery like there's that moment it reminds me of the moment I was talking about earlier in the original movie when something's going on inside the apartment but then it cuts out and shows the mother of the kids and then the sister of the main character like who's possessed by then just like in the keyhole just like screaming and laughing and like banging on the door stuff like that that's just imagery like that you don't really see in other movies and it's just so weird and unsettling and this movie definitely had more of that i think than the last one did what I also liked about it was that it was in an urban setting, which had not been yeah, right. done yeah. yet, unless you want to count the fact that it's in castles in the Army of Darkness. That's but a whole other I, thing. Yeah. But, like, yeah, I mean, these are always in cabins and places. It was in, Now, of course, this was different because it was uh, kind of a run-down, like, Soon to be apartment condemned building. apartment building in L.A., which made for a but, good environment. Yeah, for a good aesthetic, and it was you know? inter- and it, I felt like that made sense that they could be trapped right. in there from that. Um, and that there's like that it's not as well run as it used to right. be, and so that just added to everything about it. Yeah, and so I liked all that about it. I thought that was interesting. As far as the formula, it was very predictable. Uh, I mean, all the same things happen as they always do. Um. And so it was a good. I mean, that first one was violent. This was an extremely violent movie. I don't think I've ever seen a movie with this much blood, blood in it. Yeah. yeah, especially by the end, it was yeah. just like wow. Um, was it the but, climax of the the, the Evil Dead twenty thirteen that had the chainsaw? Yes, and all that yeah, one that was towards pretty the bad. End, was yeah. like, oh my gosh, that was, was laughable. To yeah, a point. that was bad. This, this one has some stuff at the end too that's pretty bloody and violent. You know, that also involves also a scene but. that pretty blatantly rips off or apes the Shining elevator blood. Yeah, that you know I was a little bit like... I didn't say anything about that, but yeah. I was thinking like, okay, so we're just gonna let you totally try to rip off the Shining and be like half as good but yeah. with that, but anyways, you know. But one other element that I found a little bit and was all the stuff about 
Okay, so don't you find it random, by the way, that there's like a whole, um, the way they find the Book of the Dead is just so like, what? It's like, because they have this whole earthquake, and then it's like, wait, there's a bank vault down here. And then it's like, wait, so, hang on a second. In the bank vault, these like weird, like, priests kept all this stuff. Basically, what I I would presume to be like safety deposit boxes. Right, but it's like a really big vault with all that stuff in it. And then you get into all this stuff about there was these guys that did that a long time ago. Recordings in 1923. Yeah, Yeah. which is like as old as what our great uncle would have been. I will say, this was one of the few times, and I think I might have mentioned this in the podcast before, that I have a a trouble. Uh, (laughs) I have trouble sometimes with like horror coming out of semi-digital objects or artifacts. I did like that. It actually made sense, I think, that like the vinyl and the sound that was coming from the vinyl they were itself was the incantations. Yeah, right. And, so, and I kind of like that. That's yeah. one of the few times where technology, yeah. other than like a book, a haunted book, like almost a haunted vinyl in a weird way. And then again, it's not that the vinyl itself was haunted. It was like the words being spoken right. were, were summoning yeah. that. I thought that was actually yeah. a, a cool little yeah. element. But just, I don't know. That just By felt like very a DJ random. who was like used to spinning yeah, records that's and stuff. Funny you too. Know? But, um,. Yeah, which all that's fine, but it's, by the way... I don't, it is all I, very convenient and dr- yeah. one-directional, though. Well, one thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if you saw this or not. So there's the... You remember on the vinyl, there's some of the people screaming, you need to destroy it, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Okay, so that voice was of Bruce Campbell. Oh, I wasn't even really hearing that, yeah. I saw this on Wikipedia that supposedly the director said yes... He was trapped in the timeline. That's actually him. <laughs> so that's Bruce Campbell's it's character. It's supposed to be Ash of Evil Dead in that. I'm like, what? You can just say whatever you want to, I guess. Then You know, it's like, because none of that is in the movie. Why can't just it just like, be a fun little Bruce Campbell cameo? You know well, what did I mean? You, did you yeah, also, oh, no, it has to be part of Did it. you also know that at the end of the 2013 Evil Dead, there's the post credit scene where he's like, groovy and then it's just like why yeah. but anyway and then but, well, we should yeah. say in the midst of between these movies yeah. there's been the whole ash and versus the evil which i want to kind of go back and watch i've heard decent things yeah about, i'm like but, hmm, I've not, but yeah we've not seen yeah. that just for but so it was a good movie but uh i remember seeing the trailers for it and thinking wow this looks like daggum insane and it was for relatively it also shows you how easy it is to cut a trailer that can look that way yes, versus and, the movie. And, and, and Not yeah. everything's going to be Bo's afraid. Right. Again, that was... A, yeah. I think I, I, I want to partially make my reaction to this of the first film I saw in theaters after Bo's afraid because that's part of it for me too. Mm. It was just like, oh yeah, okay, we're going back to... We're going back to regular movies yeah. now again. And yeah, back to formula. I, and I will moment. say, I did yeah. see Bo's afraid again in theaters yeah. a little bit after this. Still great. But... Uh, but, I mean, some people have been saying that, you know, studio horror over the last little bit has been pretty good, and I would mostly agree with that. Yeah, I think it's been bolstered by the post-horror of thinking, oh, we actually need to do something with this, and then post-horror has kind of slid, had kind of back. I mean, there still has bit, been but. these franchises that have kept going, like the Scream movies or things that are just kind of sequels to Halloween. this or that. Yeah, yeah but, I yeah. mean, there have been some pretty decent yeah. to good well, horror Well, part of that's because Blumhouse... Yeah. Right. Being so tied with Universal, making so many movies now of that ilk has been good. I've heard some good things about this new movie. Uh, what's that movie? Uh, Talk to me or whatever. It's like about the movie with the hand. Oh, that's the new A twenty four movie. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I forgot that. But that looks kind of interesting. That's like a British movie. But, yeah, this is Australian or Australian. I'm sorry. That's right. Because I know this directing duo of brothers Danny and Michael. 
I don't know how you say it last name. I can't even see it. Uh, uh, Philippou. But they're known as Raka Raka, an uh, Australian YouTube channel created by them. So they're used, I guess they, that's how they've come about. Okay. But yeah, that looks kind of interesting. I know there was that movie we never saw. It was uh, The Night House that I know oh, a lot of people yeah. said good stuff about. Uh, and then there was that one movie uh, it played at Sundance. That movie about the girl that's trapped at that house. She's babysitting those kids and then everything goes crazy or whatever. It's like uh, The Lodge. Oh, yeah. So there have been... I think that was like an Annapurna, maybe. But yeah, there have been... But ultimately, yeah, there have been some that have been a lot better, I think, uh, than what they have been. But yeah, I think with this movie, to me, it, it has things that are different enough. But it just goes to show that I don't know. You kind of had lightning in a bottle with that original Evil Dead movie. Even the second one, in terms and even of the second like one, the, relatively, yeah, as far as being just so bombastic and I do kind of like about Army of Darkness. It's like it's gonna, as far as those three movies, it totally goes. I to respect other thing. the randomness of that. Yeah. I haven't seen it, and I don't know how much I like it. But that's what's so crazy about the ending of Evil Dead Two is that happens, and you're like wait what and you don't even know yeah, for right. sure there's going to be a sequel yeah. and you're like what is this do you know the but, end in the uh, army of darkness i've heard it's of, like it kind of ends on this kind of semi cliffhangery note too i've also. always heard about that there's alternate endings yeah. to that movie too so i don't actually know exactly what it is but that's a fun yeah. movie it gets yeah. to the point where it's not really even horror anymore. i do it's actually like, like that line reading of uh you found comedy. me beautiful once honey you got real ugly. Like, yeah. That line reading's always made me laugh. It but, does, I will yeah. say these movies have not come up with quote the next Bruce Campbell. No, because he is something very particular I mean. that I think even, you is know. Good and enough. I do like that these movies have been more female driven, and there's yeah. certainly the potential for the next female Bruce right. Campbell. I will yeah. say though, like the possessed mother in this is quite good. Yeah. Uh, what was well, they're name? actually sisters. Those two actresses yeah. oh, too. I saw. Really? Yeah. In real life. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure. Uh, Lily Sullivan was she the one who? Or no, wait, no, they're not. Their names are very similar. That's why I was thinking. Yeah, Sutherland. And uh, well, Sullivan. I guess it was uh, Sutherland is the mother one. Yeah, Alyssa. So they're Sutherland. not. They are not sisters. Never mind. They're both Australian. They look. They look like sisters though too. I think Alyssa but. Sutherland. She was really great. Yeah. I thought though. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, performance um, wise. Yeah, it says here Bruce Campbell features in a voice only cameo yeah, role. Heard in a recording. I didn't know, even know this was a thing actually. I, and I was expecting him to have some semi cameo, but I wasn't even really listening for that. So yeah, it says all that I said, where it's like he's trapped in the timeline. It's like what? Like you get, why? Like, oh, yeah, so I'm saying <laughs> it's, it's just, just like it's ridiculous. <laughs> now, what did you think though? Because I feel like there's something we're leaving out here is the whole uh, framing device of the movie totally useless. Yeah, I, I, I was wanting to say something yeah. about that, but forgot. Like yeah, because it's a good opening. And it actually has a good title card yes. moment. And it's, oh, That's okay. one of the best title cards I've seen in a movie in a while, I think. And then it yeah. like flashes back to, what, a day or two later, or before? Yeah, it was like a Before day. or whatever, I yeah. don't remember. Um, and it was, there was a point, maybe halfway through the movie, or about three-fourths, I kind of all of a sudden was like, wait a minute, what did that opening scene have to do with The whole movie, this? I was like, like how are we going to get to this? And like, then yeah. the last scene, it kind of, but it's like, that has nothing to do with any of the yeah. characters. No, I mean, it was a good opening, movie. basically. Yeah, but, but yeah. that was like kind of useless. And I felt like it was a chance to do that big floating camera effect at right. the end again, where like it's yeah. going to possess that. They already woman. did that earlier in the movie, though, too. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I meant to say something about yeah. that. I thought that was very useless, well, you know even though I, the opening scene yeah. was good. Well, but. what I did like about the ending, though, was the, the credits where it was 
showing the pictures of the Book of the Dead, yeah. how violent that was, all the imagery of that. It's funny to walk out of a movie, yeah, right. and you're walking out, you know, most movies you get up and you walk out, and, oh, yeah. and then just this, like, stuff right in your face of just people, like, dead and yeah. dying and being tortured. tortured yeah. And, yeah, just awful stuff. I was like, wow. Yeah. But, yeah, overall, I think it actually was an all right, pretty all right movie. But And um, we, we made yeah. a point to watch that. 2013 Evil Dead. It's pretty easy to just literally. No, you walk could vary. It isn't even a sequel at all. I mean, it has yeah. nothing to do with the red because it's not even the same Book of the Dead either. That it was. You know, there is part you know, of me that conceptually likes the idea of we're going to basically do the same movie every time. With like what these new yeah. ones are, we're going to basically do it again, but change up enough things to make it look like you know old yeah, new movie yeah, I mean but, but I think they need to try harder with not, that yeah, idea they're not trying hard enough to I do, do say that else. you know that 2013 one pretty forgettable whatever this one did have enough memorable elements and changes to mommy is with the maggots now so <laughs> there's that one scene I mean there that, is a lot of stuff yeah. about like what importance should men have in our lives and a lot of the the main women or women who have been abandoned by men yeah. or, you know, and so there is some actual yeah. thematics going on there. It's not the deepest thing There were thing some in the pretty world, insane uh, moments in this as far as just things that were like, wow, about that. I think the thing that sticks out most to me is that girl eating glass. Yeah. I can, that really was like, ugh. There I was like the redneck that. neighbor like, who had the shotgun. Yeah. Too, and know? then there was a point where it was funny. A lot of, like... Twenty percent of the movie is seen through a keyhole, which is yeah. kind of random. But like that shot of that happening, and he's out there, and he's getting dragged, and you yeah. can't see what's going on. And yeah, there, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. But I don't really understand how the deadites work, though. I, I guess it's kind of like also a called the deadites zombie yeah, thing, where it's like they get once you're eaten by that, or like they basically give you the disease. But that doesn't make sense because it's like, well, if the spirits are around, can't the spirits just you do know, it? I do, I don't one know. one yeah. last thing I'll say about this yeah. is I do like that the zom- there's basically zombie movies, but there is a more spiritual component to the zombieism as opposed to and like they a Romero speak, zombies. They speak, like, they're they're not just like mutant, and that like they're you know. essentially controlled or the, you know they're possessed by demons, yet they still have some awareness of the soul of the person. You yeah. know what I mean? Because they say things. To the other, you know, people trying to run away that are like very clearly they know the minds and the souls of the people right. that they're possessing. So that in its own way is different yeah. when compared to like say again what we love. We've talked about we love of course the Romero zombies, right. but that's it's a and there are other movies that are it. similar to that as far as Return of the Living Dead where the zombies talk pretty regularly. Yeah, but it's that's a very basic version of I mean because that's like. Uh, you know them saying brain. That's what them saying brains come from. Is that movie? Just, One funny thing about yeah. that movie. I don't want to talk too much about other stuff, but that is a big joke that people talk about. Is there's that part where the cops come and the paramedics come, yeah, and they eat them, and then they literally get on the radio and say, "Send more cops." Yeah, but like they're like, mm, yeah. "I like this. Send yeah. more of this," <laughs> which is so dark but pretty funny. But anyway, so yeah, I do like that about these movies too. Is that yeah, there's more of like a soul. Mm-hmm. Of ba- there's like a battle going on of some sort, which yeah. is interesting. It's not just a basic like possession, uh, and it's not yeah, and it's not like oh they're because everything's like the Exorcist now, where which the Exorcist is pretty great, but yeah. where everything's just like they're bedridden, and then they do the, ooh they levitate and they do this thing like this. They're running around acting crazy, like they're very mobile. It's like different, so it's somewhere in between on both of those. Uh, uh, 
tropes i think but, yeah yeah it's fine it's pretty good yeah i'd say so the new evil dead rise still in theaters go check it out if you got the stomach for it there is always one big puking scene in all these movies too is that somebody yeah. puking up a bunch of blood yeah and or it's just kind of like kind of fluid I don't, or whatever. like i ain't into that as, <laughs> as warren oates once said something we are into though is Rider Summer Rider Day. Summer Day. So the trailer you're about to hear, I'm pretty sure, is fan made. And yeah. being a Taiwanese movie of foreign language for uh, or, you know another language yeah. to us, obviously, our fellow English language speaker speakers are not going to necessarily be able to understand or know exactly what's being most said. of it's tied around the song though, uh, yeah. which the name of the movie comes from. But you, so, I do yeah. think the trailer is well made in terms of just showing us some little bits and uh, of the movie, and mm-hmm. it has like a thematic. Kind of push yeah. to it. But yes, here is the trailer for a brighter summer day. Are you lonesome? Oh, are you sorry? Does your memory stray to a bright when I kissed you and called you? Do the chairs in your Do you gaze at your doorstep and picture Is your heart I wonder if you're lonesome tonight. You know, someone said the world's a stage and each must play a part. Fate had me playing in love with you as my sweetheart. Act one was where we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. Then came act two. You seemed to change. You acted strange. And why, I've never known. Honey, you lied when you said you loved me. And I had no cause to doubt but I'd rather go on hearing your lies than to go on living without you. Now the stage is bare, and I'm standing there with emptiness all around. And if you won't come back to me, then they can bring the curtain down. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lovesome 
tonight. And again, uh, even though that's a fan-made trailer, I, I love that, you know, for as long as this movie is, even the trailer has to be long, and that's true. Yeah. The, uh, until the end of the world trailers, we're going to see. So, Levi, why don't you tell us a little bit about what exactly A Brighter Summer Day is about? So, A Brighter Summer Day is a 1991 Taiwanese epic teen crime drama film directed by Edward Yang associated with the new Taiwanese cinema. Its English title is derived from the lyrics of Elvis Presley's 1960 rendition of Are You Lonesome Tonight. Set in the late 1950s and early 1960s, the film centers on Zhao Sir, Chang Chen, his name also is Zhang Jin in the movie, uh, a boy from a middle class home who veers into juvenile delinquency. Um... By the way, it says the film was selected as the Taiwanese entry for the best foreign language film at the 64th Academy Awards, but was not nominated. Another sin. Um, uh, we got to look. I'll look this up. What <laughs> yeah. had to have been nominated that yeah. year? I don't even know. But uh, essentially, the movie's about well, a lot of things. I, I want to see this first and see what happens here. So let's see. Uh, Mediterraneo. Right. An Italian movie. One. Children of Nature, The Elementary School, The Ox, and Raise the Red Lantern. Okay. I've not really heard of any of those. Yeah, no. I mean, they uh, might be good, right, yeah, but there's sure no they way are, they're as good but, as this. So. Yeah. Um, but essentially, I guess the background of the movie, and it tells at the beginning, is kind of looking at Taiwan in 1960 of being about, you know, a little over a decade after uh, the capitalist Chinese were forced to kind of relocate to the island of Taiwan after the communists took power um, and that pretty much all of the main characters in the movie are Chinese um, instead of being ethnically Taiwanese um, and that their parents are you know people who are living there now and have thought about going back but haven't um, and I mean there's one whole part of the movie is kind of the threat and suspicion of some of those Chinese of being communists themselves and that's kind of a whole section of the movie with the father uh, of the main character um, and him being suspected of maybe being communist even though he literally left the country so it's like I don't know why he would have been but anyway uh, and ultimately it's I said about uh, Chang Chen's uh, sir it's kind of what everybody calls him of being that fourth of five children because it's kind of a bigger family uh and him ultimately at first kind of being this very kind of quiet unaffiliated and what i mean by that is ungang affiliated member of a kind of night school um due to his kind of failing grades and how he's slowly drawn into being kind of part of these gangs due to his friends um kind of the friends he hangs out with and him eventually falling in love with the leader of one gang's girlfriend uh, named Ming, played by Lisa Yang. Um, and kind of all... Uh, that's kind of what all of the rest of the movie results from, is kind of that relationship and the... Uh, fallout from it. Fallout. Because the movie was originally titled... I think we mentioned this maybe last week. Uh, the original, I guess, Chinese title was the youth killing incident on Gouling Street because it was kind of based on an actual murder that happened that Edward Yang remembers when he was a kid growing up in Taiwan. Um, that and, Even having that yeah. title would have almost been a spoiler for... Right. 
what the whole movie's leading up yeah. to, but you're mm-hmm. not even exactly sure is going to happen. Yeah. A Brighter Summer Day is kind of, I think, not only the better title, but also eschews you into thinking there might be some positive, happy ending right. to this. Which, which there's not. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that later. But And one thing um, I really love, just to get into the movie a little yeah. bit here, is that for all the tragic things that happen, there is this wistfulness and nostalgia that it, it doesn't really... I mean, this is a compliment, like, feel as defeating as what really is happening in the right. movie. Like, it's got this wistful, old postcard you found feel to it that, again, is very poetic and very beautiful, even in these very horrific stagings and yeah. situations of things. And I know? think that, uh, yeah, it's interesting because there's whole characters in the movie that you can tell are leading lives and living lives that are far more... Um, loose and kind of carefree yeah. even in the midst of all the violence that is occurring yeah um like his best friend cat who is like really short kid yeah. who sings the in some of the bands that basically yeah. do covers of american music um and that he is constantly the most positive person in the movie is always just kind of like whatever about everything, and yet is actually in the game yeah, where right. he is not. Yeah, sometimes but, it feels almost yeah. a very strange thing that he's this character of positivity, but then he's sometimes getting involved in the gangs. You're like, no, you're not supposed to be doing yeah. that. There's I mean, and what's so impulse. funny to me is their first impulse when getting into a fight is to take a chair and break it and then use the chair legs as yeah. implements. This happens more than once yeah. in the movie. Um, but it's like, this movie's version of ripping a sink off the wall, I guess. <laughs> um, but that ultimately, though, that he, uh, Sir, the Sir character, uh, is a very kind of quiet, more insular character, is a lot more thoughtful than some of the others, and that he's the one who ultimately, I mean, it's a spoiler for the movie, but he's the one who witnesses the downfall yeah. um, more than anybody else. Um, other than the people who are directly murdered halfway through the movie and all the people that die as a result of the gang warfare, um, people who survive, he's the one who suffers other than also uh, the person he kills. Um, but that, and we'll talk about that more later, I guess, as a... Uh, um, coming of age yeah. thing, but uh, Edward Yang, yeah. we're supposed to talk about him. I know we're, Levi had mentioned this last week that, and we had talked about like what's a better film, this or Yee Yee. I, mm. I don't really, I can't make that determination myself because I've only seen uh, this. I guess what two or three times now. I think you've seen this three times. Three like times I now, have, yeah. and then I've only seen Yee Yee once now. Yeah. Um. So I can't really determine what I think is, quote, the better movie. But they're both Titanic awesome movies. Yeah. I think this obviously has a historical bent to it mm-hmm. that's a little different than Yee Yee was like, uh, contemporary to when it was made. But Yang has this you know immense talent at you know creating these slice-of-life moments and putting them, again, on this epic scale in its own way. Yeah. Uh, but with him in particular, and you were talking about this last week, that Taiwanese cinema kind of before this was really largely in the shadow, especially of Hong Kong cinema, which had been blowing up for some time. Um, what to you about Edward Yang stands out in terms of this era of Asian 
cinema. Well, he's very Wong Kar Wai adjacent, uh, and also the fact that they worked with a lot of the same actors, because Chang Chen, who I think is really great in everything I've ever seen, uh, he was in uh, Happy Together, uh, Wong Kar Wai movie. That's a really good movie. Um, but that I think they're similar in the sense of, I guess, that slice of life idea of things but the difference i think ultimately and what i might very slightly prefer about yang over wong kar wai even though wong kar wai has made more movies and more famous movies because actually edward yang has made more movies than i always think he has i just haven't seen most of them and they're very most of the other ones are a lot shorter because i think of him as of epic yeah, filmmaker because of this and Yee which is an hour shorter but it's still long because this yeah. is four hours long mm-hmm. um, but then I think the difference is there he's not as stylistically yeah. bombastic he's very much just show, he's a lot like Ozu in that way I think of just showing things mm-hmm. that happen a lot more just Ozu is of course Japanese painterly yeah, yeah. rather than more uh you know, flashy and these. That's what I was about a lot to like say. John Woo. I guess I've, the Hong Kong I've sensibility. Not, I need to see more Wong Kar Wai movies yeah. too. But I was just thinking. I was thinking about you know, um, uh, Chungking Express. Chungking Express. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in a mood for, for love. love yeah. How stylish they were, and I was thinking, well, that's not exactly what Yang's going for here. Uh, and, but again, I would agree. Yeah, that he's not quite as stylish, but. He really drills down into those emotions and uh, these characters who, again, they feel like they're swamped or consumed by these forces outside of their own control, which I think in its own way has to be a reflection of what Taiwan in general feels in relation to China and even Hong Kong in its own relation feels to China. Yeah, because with specifically just using Shunking Express or In the Mood for Love as examples... Chungking Express obviously has multiple storylines going on, and it's kind of not a totally even break. Like, the second half is kind of bigger than the first. Um, and then, and that's just very flashy in a lot of different ways, and very sonic, has a lot of music, you know, uh, a lot like Scorsese or Tarantino of the era, who Tarantino, I know, is a big fan of Chungking Express, and I think that's partly why it was a bigger deal in America, I think. He championed it. Um, yeah. Because that came out the same year as Pulp Fiction. So, um, And they're very similar movies in that way, I think. But um, And even in the movie for Love, which is far is a lot more like a movie like this, Dramatic. but is Melodramatic told too. in these very, like... Vignette. Uh, vignette, and it jumps around yeah. a lot. And the, so... This these movies are different in that they like you said they allow the time and they just really drill into the characters themselves rather than this big stylistic. And we're, kind of I feel like very often too, and I don't remember as much in Yee Yee. It probably has this, but certainly with the Brighter Summer Day, that there are multiple instances of characters basically confidently lying to one another, and then we know mm-hmm. that they are lying or that they're not exactly yeah. telling the whole truth, but it's presented as fact when they're... And that's a quality you don't see enough in movies. I know that was something that David Chase said, one of his big delights in even writing something like The Sopranos was because he, for years and years, we were in TV's writer, writer rooms and they were basically saying, we're talking to stu- you know studio or network execs, and they're like, well, the character's going to say this, but he's going to think this. And there, there's that clear division between what's said and what one's really going through. Yeah. 
to present a false sense of confidence. And I feel like there's a lot of scenes in this movie where that's going on. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's the that case false too. False sense of confidence that's, to make yeah. up for this fear, anxiety of this entrapment right. that the characters. Feel there's in there's some ways. of that in Yee Yee too, as far as some of the infidel mar- marital and relationship infidelities in that movie. But yeah, the uh, with this. What I think I like slightly more about this movie, though, like I said, is the historical aspect, but also the um, the specificity more of it, I guess, of being a coming-of-age movie, which, once again, I feel like we'll talk more about that in a bit. Yee is a lot more about every age. It's like about kind of about the youngest boy, who's kind of the centerpiece of the movie, the kind of more teenage girl character, um the father and the mother, and then even the grandmother, who it's not much of a spoiler to say, most of that movie is about her death and kind of the reactions to that. And so it's about all these different generations leaving, yeah. living in one house. This, I feel like I never get a sense of who some of the characters are in a good way. All of the main boy kids who are students, I understand them, but and I understand the parents. But then there's that kind of group of kids like the older brother who's in debt, all this gambling debt. Older sister. The older sisters. I think there's like two sisters, not let yeah. alone even the youngest sister. Yeah. And so there's all these characters, all the kind of siblings. You don't really get a sense of who they are. I don't see that, though, as a negative, though. I find that pretty interesting that it's like, oh, this movie's not really about them. It's kind of about these people. Yeah. But I find that fascinating. You can feel that way in a movie that's four hours long and still not understand these people. Yeah. But I think that speaks to the epic nature of the movie that you even understand so much about all the other people, too, even despite it being so long, is because it has it actually has a relative amount of action in the first half. Yeah. And then not as much in the second. But that, yeah, I still find that interesting that you can understand so much about others and not about a couple of them. And so I thought that, I like that more about the movie is that you do really see it through the eyes of one person and kind of his disinterest in these other people who were there all along that they never really talked to him either. So it's kind of a, I think that's really fascinating to see in a movie this long. Right. Um, that you don't really feel that way with Yee Yee. That feels a lot more compact and like everybody is kind of, it's kind of about every person. To that um, point, I wonder but, how many iterations of the screenplay there, there were of this. And if yeah. there were, uh, there were per- previous drafts where various were other longer characters sections, were yeah, longer. I would assume. Uh, and you got to tighten it up. got to, got to yeah. get it down to four hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, in that way, I find the detail of this movie to be extensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, even just the period detail, I yeah. was very impressed by for a movie that is about a very specific time and place. And it all, feels... all the stuff to me that really stuck out was all the stuff about you know living in these former Japanese homes yeah. and like that. You know, there's that that element of this post World War II world is still yeah. hanging over these characters. Right. We're already dealing with this exile from. Where right. they're really from, and even know? just the school buildings feel so big. Yeah, um, like that whole. I really love the opening of the movie, which is a lot of different things, but it kind of starts with them at the movie studio, and I'll kind of. I feel like there's more to say about yeah. that in a little while, but about what that means in the movie. But that then they're like in the they're like fighting some people that are trapped in the school in the middle of the night after all even after the night school's over with and just how big the rooms are and the running around all these steps and it just feels very large and grandiose um, yeah. 
which is interesting too because I know that the the kind of Gouling Street set in the movie they built. I think I heard this Chang Chen was talking about it in the interview that they might have only built that and used it for like maybe one night or two nights. They shot all that stuff on the street market stuff. Yeah. Because that's in a couple different parts of the movie. They literally only did that in like a day or two. Maybe one night. I don't know. Like filmed all that. And that's also the ending of the movie. Yeah. Which, you know, would have been hard to shoot. Right. Um, So that's really impressive to me. They put that much, you know, effort into that. Um, But as far as, I guess, yeah, with Edward Yang and... I, I haven't seen enough other of his movies and Taiwanese movies to make a big kind of statement on that, but I feel that I, I actually am interested in and prefer that sensibility slightly to Hong Kong, and I'm a big fan of Hong Kong. And who knows, we might well. be talking yeah. about some of that next so, week. Uh, Not to spoil things too much yet. But, but. That I find that to be an interesting sensibility that we are interested in also just as historians knowing the context of that that is still even to this day, literally months ago, that was still a whole thing about China and Taiwan, and it's still going on, but especially just recently. Um, so, yeah, that is an interesting kind of counteraction to that whole Hong Kong international kind of uh, uh, omnipresence that was there, going on there in the 80s and There is something to be said, too, I, I was going to say about the 80s and 90s, is yeah. that it's coming to the end of the 20th century, so it feels like, in its own way, it is reflecting upon what the last several decades yeah were you know and again we're not super versed in taiwanese culture and kind of a whole whole lot of taiwanese history but knowing what we do about the exile of a lot of uh the chinese following the communist revolution and their again their exile there to taiwan it was interesting to see again of course we're going to key into this as americans the influence and impact that american culture had on especially the the youth of the movie most especially the youth in the movie i think too uh more so than the uh, older, yeah. Uh, you know. So I wanted to get your characters. opinion on that first, as far as it as a coming of age movie. What do you think about? I mean, that like I this? said last week, I think this. When I think of great coming of age movies, I think of something like this. Uh, Four Hundred Blows is one of the yeah. first movies I think of. American Graffiti is another movie yeah. I think of. Because all these movies have denouements, which are interesting. You because most coming yeah. of age movies people think of differently than that. But I think yeah, and. We can talk about this too. What makes a quote great coming of age movie? I think it's a very so fine line, them, and there's different yeah. types yeah. and different feelings one walks away from with coming of age movies. I think one of the hardest things to achieve, and all, the things that the great ones really seize upon, is depicting childhood with an adult lens. And I think that's like a very difficult thing to do because you don't want the characters who are children or teenagers to come off as unrealistic mm-hmm. but the movie itself a lot of the great ones they have this sort of you know this wistful wisdom and wistful nostalgia looking back at childhood and depicting these circumstances where it feels as though for the characters the world is their oyster they can do anything but in reality we know that either directly or indirectly there are these dramatic elements in the story that are pushing things into a place that oftentimes the characters don't see directly in front of them, uh, yeah. but is right around the corner. And I think that's an element of this movie. And I think one thing that really, and we'll talk about this later, the effect of a long movie and the effect that that can have is while it has this title of A Brighter Summer Day, there is this creeping feeling that something is going to go very bad here, very wrong here. When's it going to be? And again, there is this kind of dramatic kind of 
letting some air out of the tire in the middle of the movie, which yeah. almost feels as though that might be the dramatic kind of moment that everything's a before and after reaction to when in reality it's all prepping us for yeah. what really happens in the final moments. But again, I, I hold this up with, you look around the world at various examples of international cinema, the great uh, coming-of-age movies, this is definitely way, way, way yeah. up there on the Mount Rushmore yeah. of great ones. And I think because it has that, again, in a lot of the great coming-of-age movies, they make you really fall in love with their characters, even for their faults, yeah, and make you really just feel in a bad way for them when that that whatever's right around the corner that they can't quite see yeah. finally confronts them. What, yeah. what about coming-of-age movies for you is appealing, and how does this fit into the tradition of coming-of-age movies? Yeah, well, the, and there's so many of them that are very positive, and that's fine, because I think that... Uh, like you said, I feel like the uh, ones I really stick with are the ones that kind of have right. a and I think it's melancholic different. notion yeah, to them. Um, but I think it's because we also look back on our... Rebel Without a Cause, which is a yes, movie we fell more in love with yeah, over time. Fed, I didn't even think of that one. Yeah, coming-of-age right. movie. Mean, yeah, and that's a... Wow, the end of that movie. Yeah. Um, but um, but I feel like the mo- that movie's weirdly conflicted in its very yeah. final moments yeah. about whether it's quite yeah. a good or a bad ending. Yeah. You know, but this is definitively like bittersweet at worst or at what, best. Brighter summer say. day. No, I'm saying yeah. rebel oh, without a call. Oh, I was going like, to say this is no, a, <laughs> no. <laughs> bitter. Uh, yeah, very bitter. Um, but um, yeah, th- I think. I appreciate the coming of age movies. There's so many of them made, and we talk about them on here a lot. Um, but I think that um, the thing too is that with those types of movies, it's and normally we think we as a culture think of them in the John Hughes yeah. type, especially American culture of the John Hughes type of movie, especially something like a break, the Breakfast Club, a Breakfast Club. No, there's not. There's not the. There are, as as the Joker would have said, several. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that the Breakfast Club is very much it. It's that big bombastic, happy kind of nostalgia movie, but also has these elements of look at the darkness in these people's lives. Um, but we normally, when we think of coming of age movies, it's either in that sense of children, like the animated, like an animated movie, or teenagers, you know, or young adults. Um, and you, typically it's all about these problems that are confronted and are dealt with. It's very much about, it's literally that coming of age of dealing with those problems for the first time. What I find so fascinating about this movie is that the problem, the worst problems you could ever confront in your life are confronted and then that's it because they are dealt with. And Mm -hmm. I guess spoiler to say, but the, uh, ending of the movie, uh, ostensibly is, uh, Zhao Sir killing um, uh, Ming's character in kind of a rage, uh, mostly about her kind of uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, uh, trying to think, promiscuity um, yeah. with other men, um, and his anger over that, and murdering her in a rage, and then literally it says I think at the end that he was going to get the death penalty, but he got like what 15 years yeah or something yeah it was a sort of um, and that we never see him anymore after a point in the movie it's like no no he's been taken away and dealt with and then there's like a little bit of time after that with other characters but that that's just a very um different sort of 
coming of age. And I think what's interesting, normally coming of age movies are about, you know, relatively light things. I mean, you know, in American Graffiti, you think about which has the big denouement at the end, but it's ultimately about, oh, these people are just hanging out for this last night. And will I go to college? Will I do this? You know. Will I get a date? Uh, you know, right, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> will I ride this Vespa? You know, hello, baby. You know, um, but that ultimately with this, it's literally: Will I be part of these gangs? Will I participate in widespread murder? Yeah, I mean, the, like, the, the, and, the stakes are very yeah, high um, and real. Because in that I way. talked about it. The seek, my favorite sequence in the movie is that part where it, they basically the kind of Ming had been the the girlfriend of the Ma character who was the uh, not Ma sorry Honey who was the uh, kind of leader of their main gang that they're part of the uh, what were they called Matt I can't remember but anyway they were uh, had and so after he's killed uh, let's see who is it uh, trying to find I know the two one sevens are the other group Little Park Boys yeah the leader of the Little Park Boys and they all get their revenge for his death by going and killing all the 217s or a lot of the leaders in their, like, pool hall, which yeah. is, like, randomly the power keeps going out on. Yeah. It's like, y'all everyone like, deal with that, but... Well, then they intentionally then, cut the power, I think, don't they, like, when they go in and I think so, yeah, them. but they don't know that. Right. Because, yeah, well, it plays right. into that. that yeah, they already that, that's all that a great sequence of the, the candles being lit and then them fighting in the dark. With that's probably the most stylish and, sequence right. in the movie. Uh, but that what I love about that scene is that, for the most part, uh, Sir is not involved in any of that yeah. Explicitly, he then walks in in the aftermath right. and watches all the and just sees all the dead bodies. And those are some great shots of just like the light, the flashlights on the bodies just laying there, and him having to like confront that. I wonder too and, how much of all the things know. in this movie are leading up to almost Yang asking the question of the audience is like not of the inevitability of the ending of yeah. him killing her, but of like we'll see this culture. Of yeah. violence and paranoia and self-doubt leads to right. as a natural, unfortunate conclusion is in right. the, this murder. And you know, I know that, that I heard in the the, uh, the interview that Chang Chen did for the Criterion, uh, he said that before that scene, Yang, uh, Yang, it, it sounded like, and he everybody loved working with him, so it's not anything exactly bad. But he seemed kind of sort of like a William Friedkin type where he would want to take people to this place and then put them in these situations and yeah, see right. what would happen. So supposedly before that scene when he had, when he went in and all the dead bodies were there, he like screamed and yelled at him and then made him go into a dark room by himself for like 30 minutes and then brought him out and just said, here, do the scene. And then they had the people there and said that a lot of his like feeling in that scene was like, this very isolated like yeah. terrified state of like seeing because he didn't really know what the setups were going to be and what exactly he was going to see I think and kind of you know so I, that I really love that sequence of like I said all these and the movie starts like that from the beginning where it's like these people fighting and beating each other pretty severely because there's the part at the beginning of them wanting to find out where people are and it's this relatively younger kid and they're smacking him around, all the blood's coming out of his mouth, and it's just very, the movie is very immediately like, this is what this is going to be. Yeah. You know, there's not a whole lot of, like, uh, 
illusions about that. But I think it's by that point in the movie you're really starting to see, oh, this isn't really what a coming of other coming of age movies are. It's very much this dark reflection on what youth can be in this violent state. We talk you know? a lot here in America about angry white male rage. Uh, obviously, that's led to mass shootings and all sorts of awful, yeah. horrific things. Yeah. This is almost a projection of, well, it's not just a problem with white males. This is a problem with males in general, because this movie is ostensibly in a major way about masculinity and the way what expectations of masculinity are versus what the reality of masculinity is and the, the inherent vulnerability of that. You've seen the uh, Mikhail Haneke movies of the the nineties as well. Yeah, uh, the version of the that trilogy. Uh, what are those? Movies yeah, well, again? it's the Seventh Continent, Benny's Video, and uh, Seventy One Fragments Under Chronology of Chance. Which so, I know mm-hmm. to an extent. I know one of them in particular is about that feeling of male rage, mm-hmm. and that's something that again, for kind of putting that in the context of the nineties, and this is a depiction of the early sixties in Taiwan. So in that way, it's very distinct and separate from American culture. Nevertheless, globally, it seems as though male rage in the 90s especially is something that, yeah. you know, was unfortunately front and center. Right. This movie is a, a depiction of a past version of it, yet nonetheless in yeah. the early 90s. And, yeah, and it's a very minor thing, but what I really love about the opening of the movie and the radio in the movie yeah. has this whole random, like, all this stuff about, well, they were taking it apart and then it was working then it wasn't working and it's like a whole thing. Uh... But I don't want to get too far into the like, because we were joking at one point, this movie doesn't have very much of this, I don't think, but we were joking about sometimes about sometimes the visual symbolism in a movie can be a little too loud. We were talking about that part where Sir and Ming are having this conversation and the uh, the Taiwanese army tanks are going out. And I was like, the tanks are going in front of them. Like, the war (laughs) is in, the war is tearing them apart. You know, so very like obvious visual storytelling but at the beginning of the movie you had the them reading off the basically honor roll names for kids who did really well in school right. and you hear and this is literally right after they've had this meeting at the school where they're like he's going to have to go to night school so that he can get called up cuz he's not doing really well and then the ending of the movie is them doing that basically a year later and there's that moment, and basically right before that, though, the radio's not working, and then the girl's picking it up and moving it, and then he says, and it starts working, the dad's like, stop it right there, hold, and then she just has to, like, hold it. And not only the symbolism of that, where she's literally kind of having to hold up this thing that they thought they could once get yeah, out right. of their children, but also the final shot in the movie is of the mother doing laundry and finding his old... Uh, uniform and just kind of standing there with it because he's in jail yeah. by that point and then kind of just holding it and smelling of it and that's like the last image yeah. in the movie just for a coming of age movie to be that directly uh, melancholic negative and tragic. melancholic and tragic I've just never seen something on that level yeah. even American Graffiti is of a little bit of a different well that right there speaks to it, again you know, part of why the movie among the reasons the movie's so great is the length yeah, it, and we've talked about this with longer movies before, like a movie like Heaven's Gate. That yeah. it builds in all this history and character that a small little touch or moment like that just means so much because of what came before it. You know, like what people say about Jean Dillman that as yeah. far as that too, which I haven't seen. Yeah, but yeah, so that's definitely different to me. I think is a really heartbreaking. Uh, 
moment in that, which Yee, and I and I've said this. I don't think I've said this on there with Yee. The ending of that movie was the hardest I've ever cried at a movie, movie mainly because of certain specific things of my own life. But that um, that that ending is very heartbreaking, but in a more positive way about the family still all together and the little boy who's been quiet the whole movie. Finally reflecting on what his grandfather, his grandmother meant to him and what that means to the rest of the family too. And just that's a very positive, melancholic ending. This is the total opposite of that, of being like very serious and tragic. And yeah, so that's definitely different, not only between Yee Yee and this, but just the coming of age movies in general. But um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, we kind of talked already about the style. But the one thing I wanted to say about the movie is that it yeah, it's very much it has no music other than the diegetic, like no score, right? Which is di- really interesting for a movie that is this long, too. And sometimes and, that adds to the the feeling of the pace. Meaning, right. I won't say no; it's not boring, but it yeah. The the time passage of time is more present to you when mm-hmm. sometimes there is no music, which right. is very likely, obviously, intentional for mm-hmm. Yang. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did wanted to remark upon, and you had said something about it earlier, was the role of the movie studio in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how much of that was directly autobiographical for Yang. If that, if in a similar way, you know, obviously he got into filmmaking and became a filmmaker. I would be curious to know. I don't know a lot about his biography. The extent to which, like, similar to the characters, that offered this sort of an escape. Uh, and there's a time yeah. or two where movies are even they go to go see uh, I think what Rio, Rio Bravo, Bravo I think yeah. um, the, the 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 you know it's not as pronounced as like a Tarantino movie you mentioned him earlier is during this time but the love and escape of cinema yeah I would imagine that has to be some impactful aspect yeah. to him that he wanted yeah. to impress upon this right. movie and I think there's also an inherent and I don't know what this means with it because he's clearly a lover of movies and a lover of cinema because he made one of the best movies ever so uh, but that yeah but that there's that part the whole part of the movie where Ming is being approached by the director uh, they're making that yeah. movie on the studio in the studio and he's like oh do you want to be like in this movie and do the screen test and kind of that I guess adding to her I guess perceived promiscuity um right. and and or the or, or even the idea that she might go somewhere right or she could and, and he's I'm jealous stuck of that here, right and i'm not yeah. gonna be able to have that right. opportunity and so that along with something that i just now thought of i had never thought of before is that there's that moment they go to see rio bravo and then there's that moment later where sir has on the cowboy hat and is acting like he's got like a gun and is like doing stuff with it. And then he turns and points and she's standing there. And then later in the movie, she has that pistol of Ma. Which I remember the first time I saw yeah. this scene. I was, oh my God, did yeah. she shoot him? Yeah. And that she shoots, but it misses. But it treats it for a right. moment like she did shoot But him. then finally later he stabs her. And that's this almost subtle ramping up of stakes right. very slowly yeah. of that eventually... I mean, I don't say this to, you know, make light of it, but just like you play with matches, you're going to get burned eventually, right. and that kind of the expectation of, uh, or rather, the kind of emulation of violence. American culture and mm-hmm. violence, where it's already present in the places around them, I think is a kind of a whole theme of the movie of that of uh, 
the corrupting influence of America almost and um and yet how those circumstances already of Taiwan have manifested themselves in that anyway but I find that to be an interesting interplay that isn't as obvious as it could be I'm thankful because it that doesn't feel I know that sounds very like cinema about cinema and it could be worse about it's that. not nearly I mean, as self-conscious again as I said of Tarantino or right. other things of this or era. even I think until the end of the world right. is, oh, which we'll talk about is, in a minute yes. but that's of a whole other meaning yeah. to that which is good but but yeah. I don't I don't think you know I do agree about that but the level of liberation Elvis yeah. represents and American yeah. music represents. Yeah, I, don't I think mean, that, it's not yeah. clearly this right. totally good or totally bad. It's yeah. just kind of this because I think yeah, in the middle that is. And what's funny is I recently, just for my own sake, uh, rewatched Mystery Train, uh, a Jim Jarmusch movie, which yeah. is totally its own other thing, but is about the ghost of Elvis, which is also in the late eighties, early nineties, around yeah. this time. That there was a lot of Elvis stuff in the world and in the culture around this time, which is very curious to me. Um, but again, what you know, I feel like one of the some of the few almost seemingly unambiguous happy scenes in the movie are those with which characters are listening to music, recording music, transcribing music, performing music. You know, just yeah. like the mm-hmm. the power that music has as a liberating act. And that was and the case the, in the Cold War in Europe too. So that was a worldwide phenomenon of those kind of oppressed peoples. Uh, and again, it's funny because it's totally culture. different things. Yeah. But here, the reaction that Elvis and some of rock and roll got in the states, um, and we think about that in such a domestic sphere for us to see how that was interpreted and consumed and held dear by these other cultures in the world during that time is always an interesting, uh, yeah, phenomenon to yeah, see. Yeah, and that's another thing I was going to say about the movie is I think that the whole aspect of it as the freedom to be oneself that is awarded to Americans in the West that when these kids attempt that goes horribly wrong. And not that that didn't always obviously go wrong for a lot of people in America too, of juvenile delinquency. Uh But it's just clear that in most of these other movies, when you see people doing that in American Graffiti, even even with the Paula Mack character who dies after that movie, is a very heroic figure, yeah. uh, and it first seems to be a jerk, but actually is very, like we've said before, avuncular, and and is a positive, ultimately, influence, actually, on people. Uh, even, and he dies this almost like seen as heroic death, in a way. Uh, and in all tons of other movies where these things happen, or even James Dean, of being like that, that he was this kind of bad boy, but not... Well, the role he and, has in, yeah. like, say, Rebel Without a Cause, that I feel like most of the movie he's walking a tightrope between yeah. whether he's an anti-hero or not. Uh, but the then end, ultimately, very much a hero. You know, and, yeah. the role he plays to Sal Minio is almost like a father yeah. figure. You and know? so you see all that in these movies, but then with this, you see someone not knowing how to emulate that, almost. Yeah, well, it because feels like they're they, aching for someone to step right. in and be their real father figure. Yeah. And there's some scenes... Kind of between him and his father, and his father in his own, you know, way. I he, guess they are to set actual father straight. and son yeah. in real life too, which is interesting. But yeah. but you know, and we didn't really talk much about what that father's going through. That again, you yeah, because that's a whole other section of the movie too. That we yeah, because he's always like trying to find the right job through like a friend of his who's very successful. It seems, yeah. and were friends in China during the war, and they went together when they left. 
uh, and that he's been very successful and he hasn't, and he literally loses his job over the fact that he is accused of being a communist and tries to find a new job, and then things consistently break down in the family unit as the one boy keeps stealing, well, he steals the watch at one point because he he is gambling yeah. and then sir steals it another time and it gets blamed on him and just the total erosion of that family over all that is very drastic and dramatic and um yeah that all of that is almost its own other movie that i feel is pretty definitive like i don't feel like i don't understand those sections of the movie yeah which is interesting because it's almost like even though most of this movie is seen through sir's point of view of him reflecting on his father's feelings as an older person. And, yeah, and you know, but, but also it does, I think, I do like that in those scenes that there is this sense of remove, yeah. like, almost mm-hmm. like we're a child watching right. it. We don't totally understand what these adults are right. talking about, and it's all going yeah. on kind of off-center or off-screen for us. Um, and there's no scene where he sits down and says, I'm going to be the man that my father isn't allowed to be or can right. be. But that that is an unspoken aspect, I feel like, of, well, my dad's getting run down and run over. I'm going to assert myself, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and look where that gets him in the end. And it's that almost unsolvable question, because it's like, well, it doesn't get the father anywhere either, being the way he is, so... That's a very right. you know sad. So, how what is success right, in this but, world or in yeah. this where it feels as though you're purely always because playing displaced, you're displaced yeah. because of, right. you're, you're always yeah. having to defend oneself as opposed yeah. to just being oneself. And, yeah, and that that only avenue for those kids is to just be in these gangs and go down these you know you know dead end roads and ultimately very dense yeah. movie. When I say that, I say it as a compliment. Not that it's it's not a hard to understand movie thematically yeah. or. Uh, cinematically, and but it's interesting because it's you know it just yeah. feels like as we've been saying yeah. this whole big world that yeah. we're getting a sample of, and it's without I, being a genre, well, yeah, movie, yeah, and I don't think it's like a particularly funny movie exactly, but it's very, I mean, and I'm saying this even for somebody who loves long movies, very engaging, very actually a lot of kind of action throughout crime elements i mean there's quite a bit of stuff there that i feel like if there was ever going to be a long movie that somebody watched that wasn't it would be this maybe that they could probably get into and be interested in um a lot like the godfather in that way for a movie that is that long is that thrilling i think consistently now this even still is very much less of that i think we gotta talk about our boy honey a little bit yeah, you, you <laughs> one of the most surprising more, characters. Yeah, you say more about that because you have more say about uh, that than me. So he's played by uh, Lin Hong Ming. Yeah, that's how you say his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of the most surprising characters because he kind of starts off the movie as basically the bully, and that he's wanting his homework to be done. And oh no, just, you're no, you're talking about uh, not Honey. Honey is the Sly. Bully that, maybe is that, Sly. Is I'm that sorry. Character, yeah. I'm sorry. Now, well, we'll say about Honey what you said about Honey, who is the leader. Honey, don't call me Honey. Oh, um, yeah. but that. He's the leader that you said he's the most anime character ever, yeah. or whatever. Like, I'm sorry, it, I got yeah. those confused. Right. I couldn't remember. I knew yeah. that it was like this yes, one word, yes. but I do want to talk about Sly though too. Uh, in a second, but but yeah. yeah, with Honey, yeah, like I, yeah, I was saying, Levi, I'm not, I'm not a huge consumer of anime, but I've seen enough to know he's a very anime character. He's this character that everybody talks about. Oh, he's big. He's bad. That what then happens he, when Mister Wu will show yeah, like, right. up? Yeah, right. Honey will show up. Yeah. Uh, but, and yeah. so he comes into the movie, and he, like he's not even totally wearing his jacket. He's like, like looks like a right. sailor. Or he's something. He's like a yeah. sailor. I guess he's in the navy. I don't really know. I think that's what it was. Is he kind of went and like 
did some service while he was hiding out or something. But he, he kind of just yeah. strolls into the movie and he's like very withdrawn and like everybody thinks he's the coolest guy ever. Yeah. But then like he he clearly knows that there is no coolness to life. Like he, yeah. he's so over everything. Right. And he kind of he barely has any scenes with really Sir. Uh, but there is one where he's almost trying to semi-mentor him, but then, he, he again, killed. he's yeah, killed. Right. He, that's kind of in the middle of the movie, pretty much. No, yeah, I'm sorry. Sly was who I was thinking about, of who's um, yeah. hung you. He's Shin. one of the more interesting characters in the movie, I think. Who, again, yeah, he starts like, off kind of like I was saying as the villain or the antagonist. Right. But then over time, and there's a big space in the movie he's, he's not, not in, in yeah, and then he right. comes back maybe a little more towards the end, where he's kind of like, he's wised up a little bit and he's not as aggressive and I just find it's interesting because early on he's presented as almost the antagonist right to the and that, and that and like I said that goes changes. to the whole point of the movie I think too is that even the most antagonistic person in the movie gets it together gets it together by the end and that the person who's somewhere in the middle but has this dark seething rage below the surface is the one who suffers for everything ultimately and that, that's kind of very different impulse right. it's very realistic I think too, as far as that, when that rage boils over, it's because because Sly at the beginning of the movie is at a hundred all the time, right. just constantly a problem. It's like, like, it's like you here, know. you write this for me. You right. do this. Give me your lunch money. Like it's just very yeah. just classic. I love that scene, by the way. Behavior. All the scenes with the teachers and the principals are hilarious in the movie. But there's that part where. The guy, he's like that bald guy, and he walks up and he's like got his hands behind his yeah. back when they're fighting, yeah, Sly yeah. and Sir fighting, and he's like. Do y'all enjoy coming to my office? Yeah. It can happen again. Yeah. Basically, like, let's talk about how we listen, basically. We, we, but, we yeah, talked about, like, too, like, yeah. what it's like to be any of these kids in the background during these scenes, like, in the world of the movie. Yeah, and they're just, it's like, just like, all right, well, here they go again. Yeah. Doing their crap, I, like, I watch that every day with kids who always follow directions in my classes, yeah. and then there's the kids that act out, and I sometimes look over at them, and they're just, like, sitting there, like, oh, here we go again, yeah. well, I, you know. And most of them will laugh at the stuff, but there's one or two that are literally every day, mostly some of the girls that are really well-behaved, that just sit there and are like... So I think about I that I was just talking to yeah, some but, kids this week about yeah. uh, when I was a kid in school, yeah. when I heard a teacher say, uh, get out in the hall. Like, yeah. I, I literally had to hide my yeah. face. I was like, I wanted to laugh so hard. And I remember my first year of teaching when I had my first get out in the hall moment, I wanted to start laughing at myself because I was like, oh, my God, I'm prime time now. I'm the yeah, one doing right. it. And uh, then uh, – and the, then The power. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but just like – more yeah. just like laughing at the yeah, sense yeah. of like, yeah. oh, wow. This so is, here we this, are. It's like this must be done in secret. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's one of those things I don't like doing much because I don't like leaving the other kids alone in the room. I've only had about three or four of those this yeah. year. Which I usually take them aside number. at another time yeah. that I'm able to. But but I was telling you know. the kids, like I said, that I kind of – even now I've had a few this year. I almost want to laugh out to myself, you know. Yeah. Um, but – and. Oh, there was something else I was going to say. What was it? Uh, oh, well, another aspect just in my own life yeah. that I had like that was when I had, uh, when I was student teaching and I had taken over as a long-term sub before I got my job. Yeah. And I, they trusted me enough to officiate a EOC test even while I was yeah. still doing that. And that moment where the door closed and it was just me and those kids and I was the one being the test administrator was the big like, oh my God, yeah. this is for now, real. And we've both like, done that now to the point where Oh it's yeah, it's no whatever. big deal now, but yeah. just... Yeah, so again, great movie, anyway. great slice of <laughs> yeah. life of you yeah. know aspects. Yeah. And again, 
we're not very familiar with Taiwanese culture, but this does seem like a really great time capsule of a time and a place. Um, not only in its depiction of the early 60s, but even in the late 80s, early 90s conception yeah. of looking back on this time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, any final thoughts about Brighter Summer Day? No, other than just it really is one of my favorite movies. I think it represents everything that, to me, not only, and I was going to say an international film, but it's like it's just film anyway, but that everything that you can get, I think, out of another perspective of cinema um, but also just cinema in general, what you can do with the form, I think that uh, lends itself to being longer form. Uh, not every story has to be that long, uh, and the one we're about to talk about is even longer um, than this by like a whole hour. Um, but uh, so not everything has to be that, but just the lengths to which you can really get out of that that TV doesn't even touch, I don't even think, and never can because that's almost too long. TV has me. great things about yeah. itself, but film also does too. I mean, they're, yeah. you know. And that you, I get often the same feelings I get at the end of a long TV show as I do at the end of a long movie. So I feel like, why not just choose the movie? You're going to get it all in one dose. Uh, but, right. yeah, I don't know. So that's a brighter Great summer movie. Day. Highly recommend it, even if you're not someone who watches long movies. I don't know why, but um, do this. Criterion one. Collection put yeah. this out. I don't. Is it streaming on the Criterion Channel? You know, it may be. Let me I look about that. They might have see. other Edward Yang movies on there. They right now. did have Taipei Story on there for a long time, which I've wanted to watch, um, but haven't. So yeah, let me let me check on that and see. But, but yeah, we watched the Criterion Collection. Yeah, release. and I, I that I remember I bought that kind of a blind buy. And it was out. just like, yeah, this looks like this. It is does have a really great cover. Yeah, that immediately just makes you go, "Ooh, what is this about?" Yeah, like, you know, it, it has that. Uh, yes, it is on there right now. So either yeah, buy the anyway. Criterion Blu-ray or stream it on Criterion Channel. Yeah, and also Edward Yang, we mentioned this last week. He died fairly young. Yeah, he wasn't that. Did he have old. cancer or something? I, I don't what remember. Was it? I think so. I'm looking here about that. Let's see. Uh, yeah, he had colon cancer. Um, he was only 59. Uh, and he ultimately made... Gee, it was his last one, film. One, two, three, right? four, five, six, seven, eight movies, yeah. So he only made eight movies. Top Pay uh, Story says it was 85. Well, actually, really only seven uh, feature length. There was He directed a section of another movie uh, that some other people also directed some of. Uh, so Top Pay Story's... Just under two hours. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of his movies are shorter. Um, but that sounds yeah. interesting. I never really knew what that was about. Mm-hmm. I was just reading the synopsis for it here. Yeah. So yeah, Brighter Summer Day, awesome movie. Again, one of the best of the nineties, I think definitely. Mm-hmm. Again, one of the I'd say up there. I don't know where, but one of the great films of all time. Yeah. Another film that we're going to be talking about next. You're going to hear from the trailer. Is until the end of the world. Santa Maria, Santa Teresa, Santa Anna. 1999 was the year the Indian nuclear satellite went out of control. No one knew where it might land. The whole world was alarmed. Claire couldn't care less. Can I help you? Yeah, it's my eyes. You have sad eyes. I'm not a sad man, though. There's a guy looking for you. Yeah, I know. 
What's he after? He wants to kill me. What for? The camera takes pictures that blind people can see. I know you stole it. His real name is Faber. Sam Faber. Finders fee, $500,000. And would you take me out of here? Where is Sam Faber now? What's he doing? He's trying to record his own dreams. I shouldn't be saying this. Then it's one a person the sitting as you step by a window. Nineteen ninety-nine was the year the Indian nuclear satellite went out of control. It soared above the ozone layer like a lethal bird of prey. Claire. Even in a shortened form, to think of this movie playing before a mass market yeah. theater audience in you know 1991, yeah, that, well, uh, that trailer is an attempt to sell that. It was the year 1999 when the Indian nuclear satellite went out of control. I just want us to be clear on that. <laughs> like, so this movie came out here in America, uh, like Christmas one, around Christmas of 91. Yeah, it premiered in Germany in September 12th of 91. October it went out in France and then it was not until October of 92 did it come out in come out in Australia which, which is, obviously plays a huge prominent role yeah. in the movie. But, Although Australia yeah. did get uh Superman 2 early so I guess maybe yeah they were like eh, we'll give you until the what end of the world. What if this was part of a long-term deal between them and Warner Brothers that were like yeah, two movies like well you'll get yeah. Superman 2 early but you'll and get until the un- end of the world unknown Vim Vendor's project you know? yeah like, you'll forthcoming unknown yet to be conceived <laughs> yeah so until the end of the world is a 1991 science fiction dr- uh, adventure drama film directed by Vim Vendor's Set at the turn of the millennium in the shadow of a world-changing catastrophe, the film follows a man and a woman, played by William Hurt and Solvig Don Martin, as they are pursued across the globe in a plot involving a device that can record visual experiences and visualize dreams. As it says here, initial draft of the screenplay was written by American filmmaker Michael Almerida, but the final screenplay uh, is credited to vendors and Peter Carey from a story by vendors and Don Martin, uh, vendors whose career has been distinguished by his exploration of the road movie intended this as the ultimate example of the genre. The film has been released in several editions, ranging in length from 158 to 287 minutes. That's a big part of the whole history of this movie is the runtime, but also it's abbreviated runtime. Yeah. And there's a really great little intro the, the Criterion Collection edition has, which has been come out, came out back in uh, 2019. 
I think. Yes, I, I believe late, so. Late um, 2019. That, that would be about right, I think. Or no, it might have been late 2018. Okay. On it, yeah, that would be right because. Uh, well, hang on. No, you're right. It was late. Yeah, it says in uh, September 2019. It was yeah, that's right. Put out. So yeah, it was then because I remember we watched it. It was announced. <clears throat> then it came out in December of 2019. Right. We watched it because I got it for you for Christmas, I think, and then we watched it. Uh, Pretty quickly after that. That right, New Year's, New Year's Eve. Eve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So a big part of this movie is the runtime, and we're gonna and we got vendors uh, standing by. He'll be with us and momentarily towards the end of this discussion. That the original released version was 158 minutes here in the United States, which is even at that two and a half hours, and that's you know a rarity, yeah, especially for '91 for a major quote studio release. And this was distributed by Warner Brothers, but essentially a uh, international co- mm. production. Um, the, mo- the movie had a budget of 23 million dollars. Now the original cut was 287 minutes, which is, again, the released version that yeah. Criterion has put out. I believe uh, you said the introduction they had, like, what, 12 hours, though, of footage or, yeah, seven, or right. like, somewhere but, between uh, seven and He said that the, like, the version as seen by Criterion is the version in his mind of the movie. That's yeah. basically it was a rough assembly, literally everything put in there. There's even, I haven't even watched the whole thing yet. There is a, uh, on the Criterion Collection Edition, um, a special feature of like 30 minutes of either deleted scenes or alternate takes. So there was even more. This could have been and as much you know, as I love this that. movie. I'm good. I think that's enough. Like you know, but I mean, I'll probably eventually watch it, but probably totally separate from the movie. Like I'm not gonna sit after that and watch that. Like so, know, the movie but. nearly is five hours long. Um, and it is a, in two acts, sort of. Yeah, loosely. Of, it's certainly split yeah, up that halves, way in yeah. the um, Criterion Collection. And so it is long, but yeah, that version, the Blu-ray, they've got two different discs that they use. So, yeah. According to Wikipedia, the box office was $752,000, which is very honestly very sad. Yeah. And we're going to get we'll talk about this with VM later. Um, this movie has got a lot of context behind it. The runtime, the weight of the movie, literally and figuratively, is very heavy, and we're going to get into the, some of the specific themes later. But for you, Levi, what does this movie, in a larger, small way, represent in terms of not only Vendor's career, but in terms of an expression of kind of end of the millennium angst that is a big part of a lot of '90s culture? In general? I feel like it's kind of the ultimate version of that, and there's a lot of these. This movie is, is a lot like Strange Days, which we just saw actually about a year ago next month. Um, mm-hmm. And we're big Lowe's fans of that day, as yeah. well. Now Strange that days. obviously is more compact, more easily discernible. Um, not that this movie's too. It's more of a genre movie, even though this yeah. is genre e. Right, but it has it's an action movie ostensibly. But that that's another great version of. I think it's kind of those two is what I think of. But interestingly, both versions have to do with living through the temporal experiences of others, which is kind of random and strange. Which is weird because that's now what we do mm-hmm. all the time with social media. Um, which I feel like a lot of people we look back now and we're like, oh, how genius they could see that. I mean, I feel like that was very obvious that was what was going to happen because there was enough art that was 
seeing that as the case. Similarly, with The Matrix, which is more about video games and alternate, or uh, not alternate reality, vis- uh, what do you call it? Virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's similar, but that's a little different. In, uh, but similar ideas about living vicariously through others. and um, I can't help but, for me personally, a lot of this movie is wrapped up in... I saw it at the very end of the same year I read Infinite Jest, which is a literary version of this writ large. And it's about yeah. different things, but also about a lot of very yeah, and similar I, things. Yeah, I was reading at the time I saw this, for the first time I was reading Gravity's Rainbow, um, and I was almost finished with that, literally within like a couple days after seeing it. I think I finished it. And that is in a lot of ways about the same things of uh, and that's kind of about chasing someone and why are they chasing them and then you know it's very similar ideas i think in a lot of ways um but yeah what i think so impressive about this is it's just so wide ranging um and it just feels so wide open um and it's still the world that we relatively recognize yeah but there are so many things that are different and new and um yeah, but as far as, yeah, as a end-of-the-millennium expression, I think it's probably the biggest one that I can think of uh, just because of length, but also in that sense of what it's saying and talking about and thinking about. Um, and because it's ultimately, I think, the idea of the movie, and we can talk about, because we keep joking about the phrase of it was not it was the year 1999 when the Indians nuclear satellite went out of control and Claire couldn't care less and that's kind of the whole point of the movie and we'll talk about that but really a point of the movie I think too is that oh we have to survive this thing and then once they've survived the thing it's the technology that is they are now have their hands on is left behind that ultimately is the kind of apocalypse of the soul yeah. more than of the actual Literal natural world yeah. and so I think that's a very important thought that the movie extols that a lot of people could it's it's kind of and it's at the end of the movie sort of so it's kind of and I love that about movies that have so many ideas that there are sections to them it's like well now it's going to be about this thing over here and you know but this is a great example of that about as far as the end of the millennium and where we are now and kind of what that is. I mean, it's very obvious for people to say that now and to say, oh, it got everything right. But like I said, I feel like we talk a lot about those things without realizing how obvious that already was at that time. And so, mm-hmm. and you could even say that with re- the explosion of reality television uh, from the 90s, 70s yeah. on into the 90s and... Uh, so, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of things that were cluing us into the fact that was going to be the case. But Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting, too, because I want to talk about it in the context of Vendor's other road movies. Obviously, he's got his road trilogy, uh, House in the City's Wrong Move and Kings of the Road. But then in its own weird way, American Friend has elements of a road movie. Paris, Texas, most especially, is a road movie. Um, not exactly true of Wings of Desire, uh, although it shares very similar themes of things he's talked about before. What is interesting about this in comparison to those is I feel like, you know, especially some of those earlier ones, there's this wistfulness and almost nostalgia in the moment mm-hmm. of realizing that we'll almost be nostalgia for these moments, nostalgic for these moments in the future, which makes us nostalgic for them now. In comparison, you know, that's kind of the earlier ones. Paris, Texas is almost like 
this trying to catch up and make up for lost time in the present, this is very much a projection of the near future. And so there is like a past, present, future text or tense to uh, all of these various movies. And again, this is most ex- most explicitly the one that is most genre-y yeah. other than maybe American Friend, which is kind mm-hmm. of a crime movie, as we've talked about in the past. But one thing I read... Well, at, well, Wings of Desire not being a genre movie, but is a fantasy, so that's a little right. different. But Sure. Yeah. Supernatural uh, elements, but... Uh, what I really love, too, is is that... It's kind of like what you were saying. I do think he probably, sitting down and when he conceived of this, had a central series of ideas... But one thing I really love about the movies is is you can almost feel the change of the ideas over the course of the making of the movie, which in and of itself was so long. I know he's also a director who likes to shoot in sequence, yeah, which is very hard to do, usually just due to practical scheduling things. But he does that in particular, so as they're filming the next scene, if they want to kind of adjust what has what you know their reaction to what has happened in the past yeah. gives them more flexibility to do that than as if they shot out. And of It's order. all locked down and yeah. yeah and like yeah. So, so he likes to shoot out of sequence in sequence. Excuse me for that reason. So they can kind of adjust the emotional you know elements of the scenes or of the arc of the story as it goes along. Because yeah. again, what I love about the movie is like you were saying, it kind of changes over the course of it. That early on, it feels like this. Um, kind of this young, you know, this younger woman having this kind of quarter century, uh, midlife crisis or early life crisis about who am I? This kind of nihilism that she has about she just doesn't really care, and then this chance encounter with these, um, ostensibly kind of like French criminals sends her off onto the whole plot of. Uh, you know. Yeah, do we want to talk a little bit about the plot? Yeah, so as we said earlier, ostensibly the plot is mostly about um, Claire, again played by Solvig Dom Martin, who is this kind of 'er ne'er-do-well, wondering woman who, again, doesn't really know what's going on with her life, who, again, gets caught up in this plot of intrigue that involves William Hurt, who plays uh, a scientist and the son of a scientist who... You know, basically, have stole this proprietary technology that is attempting to allow those who are blind, in this case, his mother, see visually or make mm-hmm. out images. Uh, and she says she was blinded pretty early in her life, I believe. Yeah. And so, it's an attempt for him to basically he's going around the world taking pictures and video of people that she knew or people that Family, meant something to yeah. her on the eve of her very late aspects of her life and what's presumed to be her death. All all roads eventually of this movie lead to Australia, which is where mm-hmm. his parents are and where kind of this uh, Aboriginal culture is that's kind of seems as though it's lost out of time. It feels like it's cut off from, quote, society writ large. Yeah. And in the backdrop of all this is this, again, this Indian satellite that's threatening to crash on Earth. And so there's this whole debate kind of going on in the background about yeah, whether like or not... the United Nations United is Nations debating on whether they're going to shoot it or not. Nuke it yeah. or what they should do with it. And I think a key aspect of this movie, too, is because it's easy to talk a lot about this movie without, for me, talking about one of my favorite aspects, which is the character of Sam Neill, who's yeah. basically the narrator of the whole story. He's basically... Yeah. The framing device of a sort is almost his book... 
that he's writing a version her. of everything yeah. about mm-hmm. specifically him and Claire, who's his ex girlfriend, who he kind of reconnects over the course of the plot because he's helping her out. Claire herself, basically the main character of the movie, almost is also the MacGuffin of the movie because yeah. she's somebody that a lot of the men in the movie are obsessed by and are consumed by, most especially Sam Neill and his Neil own and then William Blade. Hurt and then Rudiger Volger also and so. And yeah. so there's a lot of plot going on in this, but to see it moment to moment, it's not confusing at all. No. I don't really mm-hmm. think it's just it just goes in a lot of different yeah. directions. All to the point of kind of some of the most climactic elements of the movie and really like the last say 30, 45 minutes are about, okay, what if instead of just creating this technology where we see that we project images into the minds of the blind, but we actually are able to capture our own dreams visually and getting lost in the fantasy world and not really being able to distinguish the dream world and the real world. Yeah. You know, which is very clearly a cinema illusion and kind of like we've said before, it's almost like vendors is asking you at this point, why are you still sitting here watching this? Are you obsessed by this? And kind of that is an interesting question. Um, but that you can only get with that length. It's also important to note, this is kind of a non-sequitur, but that Sam Neill's narration, which I think does actually add a lot to the movie, one of the few versions of narration I could say that about, is not part, supposedly, of the original version. Yeah, essentially, it was. Um, sounds like it was all cut out. Yeah. And, and that so, Sam Neill's character was even was much smaller of a character in the I feel like we wouldn't understand him at all. There's a lot of things in this movie you wouldn't understand without it being this length, but that especially, I think, is a problem. Um, But yeah, funny enough, what I like about this movie is its its plotting of events is is all ruled by chance, ultimately, which is something a lot of movies do, but I don't think they do it as well as this because, I mean, it all starts with her driving down the road. And then she crashes into these people who just so happen, these French criminals who just happen to rob a bank. And they need her to take the money and get it to Paris somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then that's where she runs into William Hurt's character. None of that is connected at all to each other. And that's what I like is that, oh, just by you, you think at first, oh, this is what the movie's going to be, is her running around dealing with his money. How's that going to be five hours is the question you want. But then it becomes about... All that other stuff. What's funny, too, is that how much the money acts as this weird MacGuffin for a while Mm -hmm. of going between people. And then at a point, nobody really wants it or cares that much about it anymore. Like, because, you know, obviously the criminals want it the most, but they eventually give up on it, even getting it back. I don't know how that all works out, you know, what the deal was there. But also even William Hurt, who takes it, is literally just using it so he can travel and then doesn't care about the money itself. Claire was going to use it just to use it, basically, for whatever. And so everybody doesn't really care that much. Um, And it's interesting how, like, every single person who's chasing each person throughout the movie, by the time they get to Australia, pretty much all those, like, antagonistic behaviors totally erode, and everybody's just happy to be there and happy to be alive because of... The and feel like that they're and I think one thing because I've heard vendors talk about that he originally conceived of this movie in like the winter of seventy seven to seventy eight so right after the release of say the American Friend yeah 
there is something, I think he said he visited Australia, something magical about the way Australia is usually depicted as us and on film and television as it feels literally like the quote end of the world in terms of where it is geographically, but also the landscape of the outback is such a ruggedly beautiful place. It's a place that one day I'd maybe love to visit or at least see for myself with my own eyes. And it feels as though vendors is talking about here we are at the end of the world, literally uh, feeling like we're in Australia, but also figuratively, not only in 1999, but also with this feeling of apocalypse and one of my favorite sections of the movie, we actually played a portion of it last week um, when we were uh, going to intro talking about these movies, um, is uh, William Hurt's character, his mother, I can't remember the actress that plays Jean her. Jean Moreau. Uh, and Max von Sydow is the father. Yeah. Of kind of her final moments, essentially, on her deathbed, and kind of the gratitude she feels but also the seeming disgust of the world that she's seen but just the sure gratitude that she's been able to see it yeah and her on her deathbed kind of with her last moments with max von Sydow, and then outside of all that what to me is 1999 represented to me on film period is that kind of big celebration party that they yeah. have with all the music that's going on that to yeah. me Feels it's like their like rendition a, of the Elvis Costello song from the soundtrack. Which we'll talk about the soundtrack later, but it's weird to hear all those instruments mm-hmm. of that. But, but it just yeah. feels like this uh, raucous in the best way, joyful party. Yeah. And that everybody's just happy to be alive, happy to be with one another's company. And anything that is going on outside of this community in this moment doesn't matter. That it, Let's just celebrate with friendship, with music, with communion. Um, in its own way, to me, a very deeply spiritual moment of an already mm. deeply spiritual film. Yeah. Um, I just really love that act of communion. And again, even that, in the midst of that, this death of this person, right. and that's kind of the point of it too. I think. And but, uh, yeah. that again, the whole last bit of the movie, which becomes more explicitly this commentary on media, on the visual medium, and. I, I saw a interview with vendors that backed this up as well. That one thing I was thinking a lot about while watching it was the the decision to have so much of this movie be narrated by Sam Neill's character, who is a writer, a man of words, a man of letters, and to feel like he's being outpaced and replaced by the visual, by the visual medium. And that's essentially the story of the 20th century yeah. writ large. Was the obviously with film and ph- photography the primacy of the visual medium in the 20th century and this almost melancholic view of you know prose the written word being stamped out by this and but also similar in the use of music or american-esque or western culture in as we talked about with brighter summer day kind of that not that vendors is totally done with or checked out of visual media but he's kind of just saying well look at the good and look at the bad that it can bring the good of course being that you can maybe make the blind see yet again the bad being the inability to distinguish the dream world from the real world and i think that's obviously something that he's played with here and there in his films but is one of the most explicit versions of that uh that division of yeah 
isn't film great, but also isn't film or visual media also present these problems? Yeah. Particular with our view of reality uh, mm -hmm. is one that is being warped by the digital world. Um, some of the most haunting sequences are towards the end, and it was at the time groundbreaking kind of high definition technology was being used. Yeah, to that's one of the questions. The that, dream sequences yeah. in the movie. That's one of the questions I have for Vim later about some of that stuff. So I'll, I'll ask him about that. But yeah. Go and uh, he he also even said that he wanted to take some of his own home movies of his own childhood and project those into yeah. uh, Solvig Don Martin's kind of her version of her childhood and kind of to play with and distort those images. And it's one of those things that some of the imagery that that produces in the final bit of the movie is something that you can't help but look at and be consumed by, but it, it looks garish and nightmarish to a point, but it's something that the characters themselves can't turn away from, right. you know. Um, and again, as you said, I think it's easy to look back now and say, oh, like, this predicted our world today, blah, blah. It was already predicting or, uh, about the world of 1991 while also predicting what our future decades were going to be, yeah. right? Um, and so... Again, it's I really love its sci-fi yeah, vision. People say that stuff about the Truman Show, which came like nineteen ninety eight, you know, towards the end of the yeah decade, and it's just like, yeah, we already saw versions of that throughout the eighties and nineties. It's just like, okay, like I mean, that's the most boiled down, basic version of that idea, I think. Of but yeah, yeah I mean, so what do you yeah. think about like the quirky future of nineteen ninety nine? By way of nineteen ninety. Well, I'll talk about it first of all in the sense of it as yeah, what the the sci-fi of it, and then I want to talk about one of my favorite moments of the movie, which goes into another aspect of what the future of mm -hmm. it means. Um, obviously with vendors, he's always worked in you know the very the present. Um, Wings of Desire is probably the most achingly present film I've ever seen, as far as even while it's fantasy what it's about and the time period and, and literally on the eve of the fall of the Berlin Wall kind of unknowingly. Um, and uh, and so he, you know, usually make movies that are very much about that. Even something like The American Friend feels very futuristic in a way of just the imagery and the lighting from Robbie Mueller, mm -hmm. Robbie Mueller and his photography. Who shot this um, as well. Right. Um, and so those feel very present. This, it's weird, and all the technology is still very analog, but we laugh, and even he, even Vendors in the introduction, laughs about the, the uh, bounty bear. It's like <laughs> yes. searching, searching, searching. Basically, their version of Google or right. some search and engine. they're like looking for people that are bountied, and there's all these little things that are clearly like... And they all use, you know, obviously every, like, new movie is a version of this. Or every, like, I should say, futuristic movie. Which is something that I think we predicted falsely, actually. It's not that the technology doesn't exist, but it's just not something that's a reality. Is video call, video conferencing or video calling. And that, yes, that's we... In 2001, we, we have a version of that. Right. We have FaceTime. Yeah. But no one uses that. Everybody texts each other. Well, you know there I mean? are like, some, there are a decent amount of people who use it. We don't personally use no, it, but right. yes, I'm saying most average people, do people just text. don't do that, which I think is actually an interesting failure 
of the movies or TV that have predicted that. That's like, oh no, it's even worse. No one actually wants to even see or talk to each other physically. It's all through words and, you know, everybody's a, people are afraid of talking on the phone, which I find laughable. I'd rather talk to somebody on the phone than text with them, but, you know. Um, that's a very different opinion yeah, than most people I know, would say. I that's know. what I'm saying, so I, I don't get that at all. Um, but, um, well, sometimes when I'm calling somebody, I feel this immediate pressure of like, oh, they're about to be on the phone, and then once you're in it, it doesn't matter. You just get past that initial problem, but people are too afraid to confront that, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, point is, uh, that that's a whole part of the movie. Then you have just the cars are a little bit different looking, um, uh, and... Everything, what, what I like and what I appreciate about movies like this, their depictions of the future have that futuristic outlook about itself as far as everything looks, but also this uh, decrepitness and this decay. That And this movie definitely has that about streets that are just not even like look really bad or like there's like a war going on or anything. It's just like everything just looks like it's kind of been abandoned and just kind of left behind. All this, like, detritus. Like, I think about that in the beginning of the movie. Uh, there's the part where she's in, uh, she's leaving Venice, um, and she's gonna go to uh, Paris, and uh, there's that part where she's driving, there's, there's like, this big traffic jam, and then she just literally turns and, like, drives through the woods, and there's, yeah. like, this real big highway that's just been left there and nobody uses anymore. And there's just all these things about... Showing the future as a uh, just an expression of decay, as in because sh- you show that along with all the advancement, because then you have all the things that have been left behind, and I think that's a very accurate portrayal of that. Because I think about that, you know, if you go up, this is specific to us, but if you go up to uh, Lenore and you drive up and down through there and you see all the old furniture factories that are just sitting there, and all just all the factories in America that just sit empty all the mm-hmm. time, you know, and they don't even care enough to tear down. That's what the future looks like more than anything is just the past, but nothing. And you know, so, the fresh coat of paint right. on And it. so, yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And there is enough of this in here where it's very futuristic. But I think there's also, also things that we as Americans or other international audiences see as futuristic but actually do exist, like that Tokyo... Uh, men's like hotel mm-hmm. where they're all in those like very small cubbies to mm-hmm. s- like that's actually what that looks like in mm-hmm. Tokyo and Japan and different places but to us that feels so futuristic so I think it's a very complex amalgamation of different thoughts about like recognizing what's already there recognizing what's not being used and then recognizing what could be used and so I think this is one of the few movies I've ever seen that does all that Plus, then you have the whole second half of the movie, which is in Australia, where there's basically, other than the laboratory, no technology whatsoever that can be used. So that's interesting, too, I think, about there, there's nothing. Really I think that's probably, I'm sure, part yeah. of the larger design of the whole movie was right. to get create this futuristic world for the first half when he knew the second half was going to be mostly in, you know, in this place right. of... Uh, Almost, it seems as though it's cut off from the rest of the world and almost looks like an ancient civilization at yeah. the time. And what I appreciate is none of it looks too far ahead. Like, it all seems like they dress kind of weird. That's the biggest thing. The way people dress in the movie is a little bit different. But then you even have William Hurt, who's dressing like this very, like, noirish figure. But not in the sense of somebody like Rick Decker in Blade Runner, either. I mean, it's like, 
very 40s-esque version of that. But I want to talk a little bit, since you mentioned it, of the William Hurt, Solvig, Dumb, Martin romance. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't it feel a, at least a little bit remote yeah. and removed? And maybe part of that is from, because we're essentially seeing it from the perspective of Sam Neill's character, the yes. narration and the mm-hmm. conception of it. Yeah, because I don't feel that we even see the movie from her perspective either. I think it's yeah, all for, from his perspective. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly she's the main character because the yeah. movie mostly follows where she goes. But as I said, Sam Neill's really the voice of the movie. And both of these characters seem somewhat remote and in their own head and are, ex- are able to experience some modicum of joy in the moment, but... It's one of those things kind of when left alone to their own devices is when the despair and the creeping anxiety comes in. And to the point where, you know, another thought I had about this too was that, you know, their romance is almost one of convenience and because, oh, we're just two beautiful people and you seem mysterious, you seem like you know where you're going in life when really it's to basically pursue this dream that... yeah someone other people have um and then again sam neill's character is one that is pretty content to just live his life as a writer uh in this stationary place but then gets dragged into this big remote thing and i wonder how much of that relationship is is an extrapolation by vendors to say and he himself has this i know but almost to have a commentary on those who have wanderlust who who want to go from place to place and experience all these things, but the moment they're asked to sit still and stay in this one place is when the despair creeps in, like I yeah. said, and that they're, that they almost feels like they talk, when I'm saying they, I mean Hurt and Don Martin's characters, almost seem to talk past each other than really yeah. taking it, each other in. So much so that in the concluding moments, and we were kind of talking about this, that the fact that they were kind of taken apart from each other and I think this part of the design doesn't feel quite as emotional even as you would think it would be, right? That it feels like it's like, oh, she went this way, I went that way. We're kind of sad about it, but oh well. And I think Don Martin's character is probably in a position to move on more than he is because he lost his parents, lost this mission that he was a part of. Yeah. And so what what did you think about their kind of, those two characters and the relationships they have, but also separately their Yeah, I think that they are both very... uh, yeah, like I said, more remote. But I think they work for each other in that moment of being that remoteness. Because Neil, you can tell with him and even Rudiger Volger to an extent as far as what his character is. And he's, we didn't mention much about him, is just a bounty hunter looking for the William Hurt character. That's one of the great but, cinematic moments ever when he gets off that uh, one bus that are basically that are on yeah. and it's like the uh, Lou Reed songs playing yeah and what's good or whatever and yeah. he's like got the dark glasses on yeah because the it's on, them like, it was them fighting and he kind of walks up and sees it happening and yeah all-time moment yeah, yeah but or uh, camp or whatever they were in basically yeah, oh yeah it was a RV, RV or whatever yeah because yeah, he like saw what was going on yeah but anyway uh <laughs> I want to talk about a moment in that in a minute when we get back to it but uh but yeah, that both of them are trying to kind of wrap themselves around the idea of her, yeah. Um, because they don't really understand her. I don't, and so similarly though, William Hurt is someone that's so hard to understand too that it's almost the people who don't even understand themselves or are hard to understand by each other standards understand each other for this brief moment. That doesn't mean that I feel an emotional connection to them as and their emotional connection supposed. 
especially in relation to something like A Brighter Summer Day, which is very, I feel like, very clear emotional movie in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the emotionality of this is in a different way, the whole movie. Like, one of the other things I was going to say about the future aspect is one of my favorite moments in the movie. It's very obvious, but I feel like it's really great, is at the end when he has written the novel and she's going through the withdrawals of not being able to see the dreams anymore. Um, and he gives her the novel and basically says, I need you to read this. And she reads it. And she's basically cured by that, of seeing her own life on the page. And right? seems and, like, oh, I don't need William right. Hurt in my life anymore. Or yeah. all that and that she says, what of... comes next? And he says, basically, like, it's up to you, basically. I mean, that's a very obvious moment, but I feel like it's kind of... The whole point of the movie is that she kind of found out who she really was and now she can actually do something right. with that. Also, what I really love about the ending of the movie, you mentioned that she has yeah, this wanderlust. It's it's actually, I didn't think about this until you said that. The fact that the very ending of the movie, which is randomly one of my favorite movie endings I really love, is it's her birthday and she's they all video call her, some of the people... And she's up in like the International Space Station, basically. Yeah, I love to. And, like the, yeah. Oh, she became basically like a research scientist slash yeah. astronaut. Oh, but here that in the is 11th an hour. interesting way to say two things at the same time of saying she is still getting to explore and search, but literally sitting in uh, this like capsule, basically. And so it's a weird kind of having it both ways of like she's finally content enough to sit still, but also still explore is a very interesting ending but yeah, I love too visually uh, yeah. the movie begins and ends with seeing the, the sphere of the yeah. earth itself mm -hmm. you know yeah. and the, I think it's actually one of my favorite title opening uh, title cards I can think of yeah. actually was in this movie it's actually interesting too that it, if I remember correctly it's seeing the 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 sphere of the earth is at the bottom I think at the end of the movie where it was at the top at the beginning yeah. or something and so it's almost like a the same image circular but different um and so yeah, and interestingly, yeah, I, I realized that watching this again because the final scene technically between them in the movie, between Hurt and DeMartin, yeah. is them in the laboratory and then she basically is kidnapped by Sam Neill more or less and taken away. Uh, but that their kind of last scene is them in that bar meeting briefly, but that never actually happened. Yeah, it was in Sam Neill's imagination of ever, thinking about right. that's how he, quote, wanted to end yeah. it. And you almost, I don't know about you, yeah. almost want that wanted that ending, but then it does feel more emotionally true what yeah. he says right. really happened. And or so, I wonder, though, what actually happened to him, because he basically disappeared from, like, mm -hmm. the, uh, because the the government was after him. It shows him going to his father's and, grave. Right, and yeah. so like, I don't really know. It's basically implied that him and that other, uh, that Australian Aboriginal actor left mm -hmm. and went somewhere. But yeah, I find that interesting that we never actually really know. It, and I think that's funny. He for enters his that, fog and leaves his right, fog. And it's kind of just like, wait, who was that person? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. One little um, acting bit I really love from William Hurt was him kind of rubbing his eyes, especially yeah. early on. And it kind of gives him this like mysterious quality, but then you realize like this whole man is has been going around scanning these people visually, and like the the visual uh, stimulation that requires for him. Because there's also an aspect of that she becomes the perfect person to see because right. she has this this kind of this invisible force like perception that she is the I think they say at one point like the ideal. I don't remember what term they use, but the ideal seer, basically, yeah. and that he's somebody who's kind of wore down by those 
images, but she's like a fresh, yeah, you know, person to use that yeah. lore. Uh, but and to go along that line to kind of switch gears here. I think it's an incredibly funny movie, too. Yeah. I'm very positive for what it's about. Well, this That's goes what back makes to... it more impactful at the end of the movie when it has the sections about them being obsessed by their own dreams that that's almost horrific. Yeah, that's feeling. like the, like, you the know, gloomiest, so, nihilistic right. aspect of the movie. Yeah. This, we were talking about this early on, and we might have hinted at this earlier. For all the stakes of the first half about the international intrigue and this ch- cat and mouse yeah. game, it never feels like, and I mean this as a compliment, it never feels like, dramatic or like tense and yeah. exactly it feels like something like gravity's rainbow which is funny but also has very definitive stakes and is very dark and yeah. nihilistic this is the almost the opposite of that in its own way yeah but, same can uh, be said of infinite jest right. too uh mm-hmm. but but as you said like it's almost like because vogler vogler am i saying that right vogler vogler, vogler, vogler uh, his yeah. character is this you know detective trying to follow her and he has, I think, every right to be pretty mad at uh, her and William Hurt, but he basically just becomes their friends and then just, oh, yeah, I'll go with you down there. Nothing else going on in my life. I'll just go hang out in Australia for a while. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, as you said, like, the creeping anxiety-filled sensation of the, the last, you know, section of the movie is really where it feels like it's all crashing down on you, even though the the physical stakes are not all that bad because oh it turns out the world survived and no big deal but yeah. it's this internal emotional dark yeah. sense but again as you said it's mostly a pretty positive vision of all these different people from all these different cultures and all these different even aims kind of coming together yeah because to survive. the most antagonistic figures in the movie even at the end like somebody like ernie dingo in the movie who's that kind of like I, can't, I think he works for the Diamond Mines. That's a whole other thing we haven't talked yeah. about. Is that the Diamond Mines in Australia are looking for him because they stole some diamonds that were needed to like run the machine or, or no no opals. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. opals that they had or whatever. And uh, that yeah that he's there. But then by the end he's fine with it and he's hanging out. So it's just yeah it's funny how everybody's just kind of like yeah whatever it don't really matter anyway. This is like which I think is an accurate. Uh, feeling of like it's coming to the end of the world and they kind of think it might be and they all just shrug and say whatever we'll all just get along for a while and then but the continuation of that feeling even after it's revealed that everything's alright it's almost that they said yeah you know what it doesn't really matter anyway we should all just be like this all the time it's very unlikely positive kind of conclusion to come to from a movie like this but yeah there are a lot of just funny different moments in the movie one of my favorite ones is they're looking for William Hurt and he's like walking up the street, and then like uh, Sam Neill's like in that weird bathroom where you're like standing up on this thing, and he's like reading a book. Yeah. And he looks, and he's like, uh, Trevor or whatever, because he has like different names or whatever. Yeah. And then they like he gets out and they get in a fight to the Lou Reed song on the soundtrack. And so there's a lot of different, yeah, things in the movie. They're really funny, I think. And yeah, William uh, Hurt, just uh, for clarity, he plays Sam Farber alias trevor mcphee right so. yeah so weird names but yeah we talk a little bit about the soundtrack because yeah. i think that's one of the most fascinating aspects well, of the, it, movie the soundtrack well. sold very well too so like when i was actually looking for the soundtrack to this movie after we had seen it it really wasn't hard to find because i actually found it down at yellow dog discs in wilmington yeah. uh I, I was actually down there and i actually found it really quickly on cd like, and so it was a big 
deal. And I know uh, that one of the most fascinating things about the soundtrack was is that, you know, I think he said he reached out to like vendors reached out to like something like 20 of his favorite bands or musical acts and he he heard back from like 18 of the 20 which he thought it was going to be half or less yeah. and he was you know gratefully shocked that as many of the musicians yeah who some of which have already had collaborations or appearances in yeah, his Nick movies uh, in particular then he's done some stuff with you too after right. this as well yeah um, um yeah so we have Julie Cruz, Talking Heads, Lou Reed, Can, R.E.M., Ellis Costello, Patti Smith, Depeche Mode, T-Bone Burnett. Um, and then uh, a lot of the music is also Graham Ravel uh, did some of the actual like score. As a Peter Gabriel song right. in it, too. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit because uh, this version of Blood of Eden is a little bit different because then it was used... Uh, on an uh, on, Peter Gabriel for album. For the album Us, which is probably overall my favorite Peter Gabriel album, maybe other than So, it's always those two. Um, but that that was kind of controversial because I think he, like, it's a long story, but like, Peter Gabriel owed Geffen an album, and that was one of the songs that he had written for that album. But he randomly recorded a different version of it that actually used Sinead O'Connor on it for this movie. Or whatever, because it is a different version if you listen yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, and it's such a big moment in the movie too. That's what's so kind of funny about it is it's used for that. And then they refuse to let that. They were fine for it to be in the movie. But they refuse to let that be on the soundtrack, probably because they recognized that few people saw the movie and the soundtrack. They were like, "No, we got to keep because that was a big deal." And so they were like real anal about allowing him to even use that song in the movie. Uh. And they had this whole animosity between him and the studio or the the uh, the record label about wow. that or whatever, and so that's random. But which is funny because, like I said, it has this big prominent place in the middle of the movie, uh-huh. and then it's not on the soundtrack. So which is funny. But, Do you have uh, a favorite song from that? Mine would probably be that these, song, "Blood of Eden." I know. Well, yeah. As far as the rest of these, probably the Lou Reed song, or uh, I really like. It's a weird song, but the Nick Cave song um, is like really different and almost the you could say is the title track. Yeah, I love you till the end of the world, and then also the until the end of the world by U two is really good. Yeah, uh, Saxon violins is pretty good. I mean, it's just a talking head song. That was we, right around the time they were breaking up too, though, right? I yeah, think. it was like at the very end of their. Uh, Time career, together, basically, yeah. yeah, of of as a band. I also like Lou Reed's "What's Good," mostly because I, yeah. I mean, the song itself is good, but I just can't get it's that image in the movie out yeah. of my head. Well, also, them really... fighting on the ground and then him showing up like looking like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wanted also to say something about the REM song we were just laughing about, just because we're REM, we're relative REM fans. Yeah, so I mean, but, I like what I've heard, but I'm yeah, I'm not I'm not listening to album right. to album, you know. But, <laughs> I love doing Michael Stipe impressions. Yeah. Um, and in that song, there's a part where it's like, something about the battle is won. And we were saying him as like a substitute math teacher, like, two minus one is one. Like, you know, and doing all kinds of stuff. And three minus four is negative one. But anyway, I would never do an impression of like, 
you know, somebody I really loved and admired, though. I mean, not no offense right, to Michael right, Stipe, right. but nobody like Vim Vendors, for example. No, like, no, I could no, never no. do. That'd be so disrespectful. I could especially. never do that. And also, like, if I were to do that on here and say that he was actually on here, like, that might even be like a legal issue. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, argue, like a argue. cease and desist, sorry guys, kind of situation, as yeah. Steven Spielberg once said. So I'm just saying, I would never do something like that. That's just crazy, you yeah. know, to do an impression of Vim Vendors. On a podcast, like why? Who would do that? I don't who know. is that for, anyways? I don't know. One thing to talk about too with this movie is again the international yeah. aspect of it, and a lot yeah. of his movies take place between going between all these different places and cultures. Yeah, I really love how transnational this whole movie is, and that it freely goes between all yeah, sorts of different it's languages: like Venice, Paris, Berlin, Moscow. Uh, there's not really in Tokyo, Beijing, Japan, yeah. Tokyo, San Francisco. Oh, it does go to San Francisco, uh, Australia. Yeah. I was gonna say I don't um, really remember much in yeah, America, but there like is that San Francisco everywhere section. possible, yeah. basically, and yeah. So I think it's filmed on four continents. And said, so. yeah, and that only adds to the <laughs> epic feeling nature of the movie is that you feel like you're getting a slice of most of the world in mm-hmm. a roundabout way by doing that. Um, now the question remains, and we can pose this with a brighter summer day while we talked about it. Is this film, quote, too long? And what is, quote, too long for a film? And the classic Roger Ebert quote that everybody brings up is, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, no no, uh, no great movies too long, no bad movies short enough, yeah. basically, along those lines. Could stuff be cut from this? I mean, sure. Yeah. But I mean, well, it was, whether yeah. they liked well, it or yeah. not. But I mean, yeah. like, but, even in this idealized yes, version. Yeah. Um, sure, but I think... You know, to you know, to become a great filmmaker or to have the canvas of a great filmmaker and to get to do a length of a movie like this, sure, things can be cut, but part of why we love seeing longer films like this is to see a director kind of fully embrace the length and size of what they're, you know, what they're yeah. trying to do. What do you think about that question with this movie of... Is this quote too long, or how long is too long? Okay. Generally speaking, well, in general, I don't think you need to make a five-hour movie all the time. Well, we anything. don't get them all the time right. either, so, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but I feel like this movie totally earns its length. There's nothing I would really take out of this version of the movie. Believe it or not, I mean, I actually think of the two movies, A Brighter Summer Day, probably. And I don't think it should lose anything either. But if you're going to shorten either movie, I think it might actually be that one, just by nature of the scope of this movie so big and what it's about. I forgive the movie for its length, not only just because it's great anyway, but especially because you get to that point after everything's fine where it's like, okay, but now actually here's what the movie's about. And so you can forgive a movie easily for that. It's like we talked about with Bo's Afraid. I don't love every section of Bo's Afraid, but the good news is, is there are so many of them yeah. that it doesn't really matter, and you can just move on to the next one if you don't like that one. Like you know, um, like I'm not that crazy about the section of the girl drinking paint or the stuff with all the play, yeah. all that. But it's like, okay, well then I'm into the stuff before that and after it so whatever this thankfully i'm into all of it but even still it's like oh well now there's another section that we have of this and it's about this thing um and so i think that's a good method of making a movie this long 
um, is to just... And also, it's all for that payoff of emotionally. I think that that's why A Brighter Summer Day works is because the emotional payoff is bigger because you've had more time to sit with it. It's like what you referred to with Heaven's Gate earlier is that that is another movie I wouldn't really... And you could cut stuff from it probably, but that's not really the point because when you get to the end of that movie, the whole point of that is the emotionality and the kind of anger that you feel while you're watching it is a positive, I guess, anger towards the characters and the and the situation. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. So you don't really get that, like I said, even with television, I don't think. It's very much uh, of a uh, filmic and cinematic phenomenon, I think. I mentioned this last week, too. I wonder if this had been made now, a version of it, it probably would have been a miniseries because... I feel like now we have more directors that are comfortable with working in television as an artistic medium that it probably would be. But again, to your point, what I and I agree, I think this movie works best as a film because of that nature, almost of a movie in a good way, but just exhausting you or wearing you down. And the length is part of the point of yeah. the movie in terms of going that full arc as opposed to having that arc split up into... Right you know, multiple sections. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's a tough ask for most people to say, hey, do you have like five hours to spare to sit down to watch this length of movie? But again, there's not a lot of things like this or A Brighter Summer Day, so on special occasions, why not open yourself up to it and see yeah. what it has to tell you or, you know, experience that way, you know. How does this fit for you in the larger oeuvre of uh, vendors? Where's this rank? Uh, well, I think his, his best movie is probably Wings of Desire, um, and then Paris, Texas, kind of along with that. I feel like it's his ultimate movie, though, in a lot of ways. I feel, it seems like it's kind of everything he wants to be about, kind of in one movie. And that's just by nature of it being his magnum opus and being so long, I think. So I think it's I think of, one of the many tragedies you know, of this movie is it seems like after this... He made some movies like, say, Buena Vista Social Club is a movie that people talk about. But or Pina, another yeah. Documentary. Or on the whole, like, you know, that from the period from like, say, Alice in the Cities to this, which was like, you know, nearly a twenty-year period. Yeah, that's like the section of his career that everybody talks about and obsesses over, including yours truly. That um, the masterpieces he made within that time span, and this is a flawed movie kind of by nature of its inception or its origin i don't know how you could really thread the needle of this and be a quote perfect movie if such a thing exists yeah. of course it really doesn't but um but i kind of like that almost semi-unfinished quality and what i love too is any movie that the director almost you can tell was finding it as they were making it and you almost feel like him shrugging at the end says i, I run out of time and money and movie and this yeah. is the best i could do with the canvas that i had and that semi incomplete nature of it i think makes it yeah. such a rewatchable film and we've only seen it twice now but yeah um you know to get through it once you feel like you oh where's my t-shirt for this you know yeah <laughs> for when, yeah and again i i think that his two greatest films are um paris texas and wings of desire but as you said this is i think is his greatest accomplishment and a movie that seemed like it took a little bit of his soul to make, almost. And again, he's made movies since then that have been big, but also the financial disappointment of this had to have been yeah. a pretty big damper on 
him uh, and mm-hmm. the arc of the funding that he was willing and able to secure, you know, right. was uh, tough. Any final thoughts before we get into No, them? only just that I can't think of two better, longer movies to watch just in general. And I think it was an interesting double feature because they're very different while being made in the same year. And both Again, one's looking at the past and one's looking at the future, and yeah. I think that makes for an interesting contrast. Yeah. So we're going to take a very, very brief break, and then Vim is coming back on Overlapping Dialogue. It was a miracle I even got out along with alive. This town full of men with big mouths and no guts. I mean, if you can just picture it, the whole third floor of the hotel gutted by the blast. And the street below showered in shards of broken glass. And all the drunks pouring out of the dance hall, staring up at the smoke and the flames. And the blind pencil seller waving his stick, shouting for his dog that lay dead on the side of the road. And me, if you can believe this, at the wheel of the car, closing my eyes and actually praying, not to God above, but to you, Sam. Till the end of the world With your eyes black as coal And your long, long, long And here we are, we're back With one of our very favorite filmmakers uh, Making his second appearance on Overlapping Dialogue Mr. Vim Vendors Vim, how are you doing? Vim? Is there something wrong with what? He's sitting right. Wait a second. Is this a robot? What the heck is this? Wait, does it say Vendors Tron 3000? I think it says on there. It's, hang on, there's a note. Can you read it for us? Uh, oh, saying you have to plug it in. Also, oh, th- he said he was going to come, though. What's the deal with this? So he sent a very Vim Vendors looking robot. Which strangely could walk into the room, then shut down before being plugged in. And it kind of has that weird look of like those who have seen uh, Santa Claus 2, you yeah, know, like right. the Tim Allen robot. Yes, yes, it looks it like does. Vim Vendors it's very like clearly, but shiny, it's like shiny, weird, like. Yeah, Vendors anyway. Tron 3000. I'm going to plug it in. Yeah. Hang on a second here. Hello, can you hear me? Vim, uh, are you Vim? Yes, this is me. I am, uh, I am broadcasting uh, from Berlin through this. Okay, so you're in Berlin, but you're speaking through the robot. Is that, that is that correct? Yes. Um, this was originally a um, plan that I had for uh, putting in until the end of the world uh, um, of robots that are uh, essentially Skype. Oh, um, so that was like a Skype. Oh, okay. So, are, do you find yourself to be a scat scat father these days? A scat man, a scat uh, man a scat, father. Do you find yourself to be a scat man, Vim? Uh, no, I don't find myself to be a scat father. Thank you. Okay. Uh, now we got a, we got a lot of questions uh, we want to get into, but we we don't want to take your time up too much, so we'll try to make them quick. Um, also, it seen also the note here. I won't, and I won't ask Vim to say this. I'll just read the note. This okay. Way that yeah, yeah. Says that I only have like. Uh, at most 10 minutes and it says at most underlined meaning that it could happen at any moment meaning it could self-destruct who knows if we're not Uh, careful right vim is this going to blow up and kill us there's a 
85% chance it will not. But there's 15% of uh, surprise. Dot, dot, dot kind of situation, right? Mm-hmm. So let's just get through what we can. Yeah. Uh, so VM, again, we're so happy to have you back on the show, even in this strange robotic form that you now are currently with us now. Very strange situation. Um, how gratifying is it for you to see that this film has finally gotten the level of distribution that you so wanted it to have nearly 30 years ago now? Well, it means very much a lot to the um, VHSs and the uh, DVDs that were released at various points were um, quite poor quality that I was not uh, consulted. Warner Brothers is uh, not the best uh, studio to work with in, yeah. these, in these situations. I've always heard if you see a cop, Warner Brother, am I right, Vim? You got it. Uh, so the, uh, the thing is, uh, now that it's been changed into Max... Uh, Max I'm, is the one to watch. I have been waiting for them to call and uh, put this movie um, because it's on the Criterion channel, but I would like even further distribution. What I did uh, like is that the Criterion collection brought the movie back to life in many ways and had me to be a uh, consultant on it. And, uh, that was an impressive uh, turn of events. One thing, Vim, that, again, we're so grateful that this movie's gotten the wider release is there's been talk of maybe making pop Funko vinyls of the characters in this movie and to really, you know, try to strip mine this IP, this valuable IP right. for all it's worth. Um, how would you feel about this being a more merchandised movie yeah, and, and b- something that people really, yeah. you know, and before you get into all the question, uh, answering that question, Vim, an additional question, would there be, first of all, a Sam Neill that you would be able to buy with the typewriter Mm-hmm. Because if you know, there's a lot of this crap nowadays with like stuff. Ooh, you have to buy that, or you buy one action figure and it gives you a piece of another action figure, and then you buy all of them and you get an action figure. So all crass, together. so juvenile. Yeah, which I've been wanting to do with the Dune action figure, so I can have a Raban, you know, Dave Batista. So version. are you, uh, so are these Funkos well, going to be on, made I'm, for the fans? I'm not done with my question. Yeah. Just a second. Well, that's then that is the ultimate question. But also, is there going to be a Ruger Vulgar with uh, or Vogler, sorry, is actually how you probably say it. Um, is there going to be one of him that you can have detachable sunglasses so that you can replay the moment in real time of him to what's good by Lou Reed? Like, what are your plans there? And is he going to have uh, an additional opal that he was going to take as his uh, as his service uh, services being rendered? What what's your answer to all that? But please take your time. My first answer is I have absolutely no interest of doing any of that. Secondly, um, Rudiger Vogler's uh, birthday is actually going to be, uh, I believe, a week from when we are recording this now. So just a few days after the, uh, it will be up. I think. Happy birthday. He's still with us. Yeah, I believe he's going to be 81. Is that correct? Really? Down by the schoolyard sometimes. Hmm. Just because it's a good area there. Healthy area. Not as much uh, uh, schwein around that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not all that interested, again, just to reiterate, of the pop funkoization of Until the End of the World. No. Okay. Well, 
Can't all be sellouts, I guess. Um, I had a question actually about um something that I forgot. You know, it's a shame you don't write these things down and really I know. plan it out. Yeah, and kind of go off the cuff with everything about what's going on. Yeah. Oh, well, um, uh, what would do you remember, Kyle? Earlier, I had some question I was going to ask him about uh something about um um oh yeah about the computer stuff. Right. Uh, because that was kind of a bit... You talked about that a lot in the introduction on the Criterion Collection about the computers and kind of uh, what it took to actually This early high-definition technology. You mentioned about the fact that uh, it actually kind of partially destroyed some of the uh, hardware yeah. and the software um, of of which there is uh, there could be no comparison by the end of the soft and the hardware. Um do you feel any uh, guilt over that, or are you just kind of... Do you feel complicit yeah. in the destruction of such items? Do you feel in the destruction of private property, or are you just more interested in doing what you want to do Or is that just time? how you roll? Um, I felt very little um, uh, remorse about that, because whatever it takes to make the movie is what's going to happen. They were able to uh, kind of revitalize all that equipment very soon after, but I was going to be damned So is that, in your own way, a way to kind of, you know, be a Luddite with regards to the technology? It's you fighting back against the technology in your own way by destroying it. Yes, this is why I tried to do black and white for such a long time. Um, until Robbie kind of talked me out of it and got me to do um, color. Although he would later do all of his, a lot of his work with um, Jim. Uh, Jarmusch. Did y'all have a falling out because of that for a period? Uh, no. Okay, just checking. Uh, there has been such a, a a push in recent years by the Walt Disney Company to make a lot of uh, live-action remakes of their own films. There's actually a rumor, and I want to see if you can clear this up a little bit, about the fact that in the 90s, kind of after this, in the mid to late 90s, you were actually approaching Disney to do a live-action remake of Fantasia, which I think would have been very exciting. The rumor is you were even going to have Roberto Benigni play Mickey Mouse, which I think is a very curious uh, role. Um, and then there was somebody else, too, that you were going to think about having be the kind of that winged demon creature at the end. Uh, what was your conception of what that project could have been, and who was going to be that winged demon creature? Um, well, first of all, uh, yes, I'll so you were going to make a Fantasia. Wow, that would have been yes, really fascinating. Yes. And then they were a lot more interested in Fantasia 2000. Um, mm. Can I step in for a second? I have a question. I just want to talk about Fantasia 2000 for a second. So you've seen that, right, Kyle? Fantasia years 2000. Years ago, yeah. So I saw that here a couple years ago. It was actually, coincidentally, uh, around the time uh, that I started reading Gravity's Rainbow, which was around the same time. So funny enough, that was a coincidence, I think. The first Fantasia is unimpeachable. I mean, totally amazing. One of the best animated movies ever. I know it's not I only, actually... And frankly, only an idiot would try to remake it, but... Right, you know. yeah, clearly. But um, that, and also, you know, I'm interested, though, how much, if you even go on, like, Letterboxd or certain places, how that movie's like, eh, it has like a 3.8, yeah, right. you know, whatever rating. It's like, this is one of the best movies ever made. What are you talking about? But... Funny thing about Fantasia 2000, though, they kind of repeat. There's actually some sections they repeat with some of the, like, Disney, or, sorry, the Walt, uh, 
Mickey Mouse section and the mm-hmm. Yin Sid and some of that. Then they also have all this stuff that's just weird, like jazz and like all this like extra stuff that's very weird. They also put in some specific like '90s Disney characters. Like I think they had some of the uh, what are those? Uh, I can't even remember. I feel like there was a whole section that maybe I'm totally wrong about this, but that had the uh, what are those two characters from The Lion King that were like the kind of comedy relief? Yeah, that they were in it or something. I don't remember. Anyway, Vim, since you've been sitting here so patiently and waiting, what um do uh so what who was it that you were gonna have as as those people? Well, were say, the rumor you, was Roberto Benini as Mickey Mouse, which I think would have been a very curious uh performance and choice. Which, uh, we actually had some screen tests of that, which uh, would later play Hitler, which uh, are in um, my foundation's vaults, and I will never uh, let it open. Oh come on, Vim! You got to do it well, for the fans, it, Vim. Kinda, you know, somebody who I would think would be very against the idea of the Disney vault, it's in, or the Yensid vault, if you want to put it that way. So do you call this the Yensid vault, where you have this like Yensid two point like, the Yensid two vault, where you have the Bruno Gans Yensid performance and if we at the vim vendors institute on social media will they reveal the existence of this or flatly deny only proving that it exists i have multiple yeses and answers to those questions but i don't feel uh the need to clarify them very good very good uh but but so who was it that was going to be the winged demon creature because that's what i really want to know because that's that whole kind of section of that movie it's the what is that called uh that section it's bald mountain yeah the yeah something like that let's not ask the person who would probably not on bald look it up okay yes not on bald mountain section of fantasia uh which is kind of one of the more famous sections, uh, mainly that and the uh, then there's that section that's the uh, what is that part? It's the stuff about the dinosaurs, yeah, right of spring, that whole kind of section. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in the movie that's very memorable of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and then you have the stuff with the which is one of the weirder sections. Then you have stuff at the beginning that's a lot more basic, just like flowers and you know images and stuff. Images as uh, as Lou Reed and John Cale once sang, um, but. Uh, then you have the stuff with the tutu wearing hippos and all that kind of stuff. But so, yeah, that's a whole kind of section of the movie I find very fascinating is that kind of last, to leave it on that kind of dark note. Um, so who was that going to be? Like, like get to answering the question now. Yeah, don't uh, don't uh, be intimidated by the fact that we are running over you in this interview and not allowing you any chance to speak. Tell us right now on and the that record. that you're doing this through a robot because you didn't have the stones to show up yourself. Like, right. disregard us believing that fact and answer the question so immediately. who was it going to be, Vim? Um, it was going to be uh, uh, Gary Busey. Gary Busey? That Gary Busey? Sir Gary Busey? I don't think he's nodded, but let's let's go ahead and throw I it his way. Mr. Busey. So, Mr. Busey, actually, we had had a, um, a um, screen test set up to do with him. Beverly Hills. Uh, Beverly Hills. That's where I want to be. You hear it, Vim? Um, anyway, it was going to be at the Beverly Hills uh, Hotel um, in one of the bungalows there. Um, and Mr. Busey was uh, quite late to the point where we had to uh, quit. 
of the wooden clocks. Not uh, you plan on ever turning that into a documentary feature to show off your wooden clock collections? It seems kind of Kyle like you remember you made that. Uh, there was that documentary you made in college about those weird like. Uh, uh, elf creature things mm-hmm. that that lady had, yeah. uh, which is kind of interesting, actually. But anyways, but, Bim, get to the yeah. bottom of this. Tell us right now, please. No. Via your robot. No. Um, oh, it actually looks like the robot has clogs on it. That was that weird noise that it was making when it came in, actually. When it was moving into the room. Mm-hmm. That, that was an interesting thing there. Anyway, Vim, what were you saying about uh, Mr. Busey, as you call him? Or uh, uh, Fraulein, Mr. Busey. Fraulein Busey, Fraulein as you would Busey. say. Yeah. Right? Yes. Vim, speak up, please. Vim. Sorry, I glitched out for a second. Um, the, uh, um, Vim, are you there? The robot's I can't hear starting him. to smoke ever so slightly. Uh, bit. I wonder if our time is starting to grow to an uh, end here. Hmm, I don't know. Vim. Vim. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Well, I think we okay. can hear you. Um, Mr. Busey came in, um, and he actually had taped whiskey bottle to his leg kind of like what Lon Chaney Jr. had done um, so he was on the sauce at this during time. the making of I think I think what Vim's trying to say and I'm going to cut him off so that I can say it um, is when during the making of the mummy sequels of the Universal films Lon Chaney Jr. supposedly hated doing those movies so much and I hated seeing them in him in them also so maybe I should have done the same thing is that he taped a uh, whiskey bottle to his leg and ran it uh, ran a straw up to his mouth so when he was walking around and stumbling he was actually drinking the whole time so you're saying them if if you can actually speak through your arcane technology which is smoking even worse now. Uh, smoking, as they would say, like a freight train fraulein. Um, would you say that um, then was he, so he was stumbling around doing kind of a similar, putting on a similar show? Yes, that's how I would describe it. What happened was I actually had to call the, um, the police um, and he got into a very brief shootout um, with him. Oh, wow. He was, uh, how do you avoid jail time for that? He was actually using a um, one of those uh, rubber band guns that have the. Oh, okay. Uh, and so that was what was nice about that. But so that was one of many reasons why uh, that project fell through. Um, it's probably for the best. I think. Yeah. Really, even thinking about doing such a project would be a gross and stupid thing to do. Don't you agree, Vim? Any final thoughts, Vim, before uh, we end this interview? Well, actually, I have one more question yeah. for Vim before we get to that final qu- A final question before the final question. Mm-hmm. Jerry's final uh, thought. Uh, uh, yeah, RIP Jerry Springer. Did you know Jerry Springer, Vim? No, um, but I did meet him once. Uh, All right, anyway, uh, so if, yeah, you, get, don't if you don't know him, I don't want to hear about you meeting him or anything. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, so did you... You know, there's all these like different directors that have these uh, projects that have kind of fallen through over the years. Uh, David Lynch had uh, Ronnie Rocket, um, uh, and then you also had finally Megalopolis is being made. Uh, and I know you're just such a great friend of Francis Ford Coppola, and y'all have just such amicable feelings. We even brought that up a little bit, uh, I think, last right? Time. But um, uh, do do you see Fantasia as one of those things that will eventually get made? Your version of Fantasia. Like, have they contacted you again as like a Disney Plus kind of uh, 
you know, feature? Has there been any interest in that at following all of these, you know, like uh, uh, bigger directors doing these, uh, you know, live action things? And also, is Roberto still in? Uh, actually, Vim, sorry to say. Oh, wait a second. Hang on. Smoking. We got to put this out. We actually might need to stop this for a second because the fire alarm is about to go off, I can tell. And so let's get this cleared up and square away first. And we'll be right back. All kids love log. What rolls downstairs? Owner and pairs rolls over your neighbor's dog. What's great for a snack? And it's on your back. It's log, log, log. It's log. Well, uh, not quite a lot to the, deal with. Yeah, uh, it actually took us two hours. Um, so Vim, we lost Vim very about that moment. He was. It looked like. It seemed like there was a faint flicker in the eyes behind those blue kind of glasses. Uh, you know, reproduction, and then it like I wouldn't say that it exploded exactly. But there was like a lot of smoke to the point where it actually kind of melted. Yeah, a melt explosion. I don't know how to describe. Almost it, kind of like, imploded a little bit, like right. it was like getting soaked, you know, soaked in, like so. a heat-seeking missile within itself. Right, is how so, I would describe it. Uh, it's like a big cigar, as they yeah. describe the giant claw and the giant claw. Arguably, um, Vin Vim's strangest appearance yet. Yes, uh, uh, but, but it took us two hours to clean it up, so we've been a while. So. But, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Anyways, yeah. very strange set of events. Nonetheless, we're very, uh, you know, humbled to have Vim on the air yet again. Shed some light into some things. Uh, he didn't shed in a lot on a whole whole lot this time, but he did let us know a little bit about his Fantasia yeah. remake, which yeah, very strange. But that's all of this episode with overlapping dialogue. Again, we thank you, Vim, for showing up and putting in some more time with us. But. Next time, Jeff Probst, what have we got cooking? Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode.
So both of those movies you just heard from 1992 as we continue to move through the 90s. Hard Boiled, of course, from John Woo. We were kind of almost dancing around saying yeah. his name at all when we were talking about Hong Kong cinema. And Basic Instinct from also 1992. Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because both those clips that you heard were action kind of sequences, so there wasn't a lot of dialogue. Also, obviously, the dialogue in the first scene was in uh, uh, Cantonese or Mandarin. Um, but, um, yeah, of course, that first film being one of my favorite films in general, one of my favorite action movies, I think most people would say that, that it's one of the best and one of the kind of most beloved action movies. Um, and kind of the pinnacle of uh, Wu's career, uh, especially pre-Hollywood, um, what are your thoughts on Hard Boil? Because I know I'm a big fan. but Yeah, um, I've not seen quite as many John Woo movies as you have, but this is, you know, he, he had several that like broke through and were more yeah. successes in the West. Um, this one is probably the biggest one, though. I would yeah. imagine this is his biggest movie as far as being able to create that crossover breakthrough. Uh, even just watching the clip, I've not yeah. seen this movie as many times as you have, but I've always really liked it. But just watching that clip again, I was like, oh my God, all this happens, this happens, yeah, this happens. Right, yeah. And it just kept getting crazier and crazier. And, yeah. Um, yeah, because we didn't even show, and I think that's kind of the most famous sequence and kind of the best sequence of the movie is the hospital stuff because it's kind of the climax. But there's that whole sequence like earlier in the movie where it's like, and not even the opening, but later, kind of in the middle where they have all the stuff in the warehouse. Uh-huh. And you watch something, you're just like, what is any of this? Like, it's just so insane, all the action that, that he was able and. So he's very much his own kind of uh, institution as far as action movies go in that regard. So, and again, yeah. as we were hinting at, a lot of the movies early on, at least in the 80s and 90s, that were getting more play in America from East Asia were these um, a lot of the Hong Kong action movies and the stars that that generated. Yeah. Chow Yun-Fat, he obviously he, he was in some American movies during this time and kind right. of a crossover actor. Uh Tony Leung's also in it, yeah. and he's really amazing as well in a mm-hmm. variety of things. Yeah, and, and that movie's pretty simple, but it's just basically, it's kind of like, sort of like the departed early version of that, or what would, I guess, be later Infernal Affairs, as far as that being remake, but about an undercover cop and another cop who's unknowingly going after him until he figures out who he is, and then randomly about how they have this whole basically weapon smuggling ring under a hospital and which is just totally insane i don't even know how that works and all of the uh uh as we like to say discussions that ensue yeah. basically after that which are uh very one-sided um yeah. and uh packed chock full of uh gunpowder but mm-hmm. yeah. similar in its own way to a brighter summer day although incredibly different yeah. movie is the whole context of hong kong right. obviously relates you know in its own way to taiwan it's a little bit of being this disconnected from mainland china but mm-hmm. this you know the british obviously controlled hong kong for a long time and it was really in the 90s where they gave control of that back over to in 1997 the when it was yeah right. and so it's kind of all on the eve of that and there's a little bit of talk or discussion about that in the movie the movie is just again one of the most iconic action movies of all time for a reason it's just got some of the best uh, set pieces you'll ever see some really great characters the villain that's kind of in black a lot of the time is somebody that I think a lot about and he's pretty great um, he's not kind of, I don't know if he's really the main villain he's kind of one of the main henchmen who keeps oh you're talking about the henchman of yeah the main villain yeah, yeah right. right 
Yeah, and then who then randomly turns kind of halfway good at yeah, the right. end. Yeah, kind of an anti-hero yeah. by that yeah. point. Basic Instinct, um, I've not seen this as many times. This will give us a chance to talk about Paul Verhoeven in general, yeah. which we're mostly fans of. Yeah, He's probably somebody that I, he he gets a lot of like positive reactions from most people. I he's one of those people that I like all of his movies I've seen, but don't think about that often. Um, and I know he's had a whole uh, previous career from his home country and uh, and of he's Danish, right? I believe or, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and vaguely northern europe european i can't remember uh dutch or yeah, yeah dutch um that uh that yeah just that that movie is funny because we're we think when i think of verhoven i think more of obviously uh total recall or robocop and that's usually what people think of. starship troopers starship is a big troopers. we haven't seen uh, that and i haven't i also haven't seen uh, showgirls uh but that's another one this movie, though, falls into all of those 1990s erotic thrillers, which it seems like you turn around too, yeah. and there's a new one every two seconds that you've never heard of, and right. you're like, what? How is this a thing? Um, this one, I think, is, to me, uh, kind of the granddaddy of them all, I think, or, or just kind of the greatest of them all in its own way. Now, I think that Fatal Attraction is probably, of the ones I've seen, the most consistently pretty good and genuinely thrilling one. But this one just takes it to another level on the cheese o meter. Like it's just so, so goofy. So many ridiculous things going on. So profane. So crass. So violent. So easy to love. Yeah. Just such a train wreck of a movie. You just can't look away. It truly is something else. Um, and I'll talk more about my experiences with this movie next week. I won't go into all that about when I first saw it and. Kind of what that and, meant. You know, and, there's been a lot yeah. of discourse on film Twitter in recent months and years about erotic thrillers and sexuality in movies. And I think one reason why people hold this era and this genre in such high regard is because it was one of the most sexually promiscuous moments in American cinema, especially yeah. where there were movies regularly being made that kind of were on the edgier side of sex, which. Again, violence is more yeah. traditionally that's accepted. That's your surprise with this movie movies. and others how they didn't just get a straight up X. Like I don't, I'm not really sure. Or NC-17 by that point, but right, yeah. So I think out of the pairings we've done so far, the '90s, these are the two that don't directly relate to one another as much as the other two we've done so far. Um, but nonetheless, they do represent this era's depictions of sex and violence. Uh, mm -hmm. Hard Boil is not a very sexual movie, no, or no. Um, sensual movie but they're both like you know I think in good ways like zeitgeist grabbing movies of their slick, era and they're stylistically, slick stylistically yeah. mm -hmm. and they're both very different but also represent 90s cinema in its most kind of slick yeah. as you said ways right we're gonna have ways. to we're gonna have to compare uh the leading men of Chow Yun Fat and Michael Douglas. Like, what are the similarities there? We're gonna have to talk about that next. They're both time. men, but yes, uh, both men who scream yeah. in this in both these movies. Okay, or what is this? Some kind of joke? <laughs> like you know, but literally Michael Douglas. I mean, we'll talk about him next week. But just what a I don't, I don't know if we've really I, talked about him much. Yeah, before but this. I yeah. I do love Michael Douglas genuinely. But he's also one of those people that I love for other reasons that are like yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just that he took it to that level all the time is just something else. But anyway. 
So this concludes yet another episode of Overlapping Dialogue. We're glad you can join us. This is Kyle. This is Levi. Take care. God bless.